Okay. So we are at the introduction. Uh, have we started on the introduction? No, not yet. Uh. So I ask you all to go back and read the introduction. Uh, okay. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly read through. And then if there's anything that you all have uh, that... Uh, any questions or thoughts uh, I can explain. If not, then we will just uh, go through as read. Uh, and if I, I find anything interesting to highlight, I'll highlight. Then we can start into the text proper. Yeah? Uh, 15 pages. Okay, so general introduction, uncovering the structure of the teaching. Though his teaching is highly systematic, there's no single text that can be ascribed to the Buddha in which he defines the architecture of the Dharma, the scaffolding upon which he has framed his specific expressions of the doctrine. In, a in the course of his long ministry, the Buddha taught in different ways as determined by occasion and circumstances. Yeah. So this is one area which I highlight um, frequently. When students ask me whether uh, we can have a more systematic approach to studying, to learning the Dharma. If you go to a, to a school, you do a diploma or a degree in Buddhism, you will find that, oh, yeah, that's like, you know, 101, lesson 101, and then 202, uh, there are different topics, and then there seems to be a certain structure. Um, you'll find that if you read through the suttas, uh, there don't seem to be much of a structure. Yeah, uh, but it is systematic. Yeah, and the reason is because his approach was uh, was symptomatic. So according to the needs of the individual, when he talked to them, he will explain accordingly. So if a person if a person is a very advanced practitioner, he will not explain too much about the fundamentals. Yeah, he will go straight into how to how to meditate, he'll go straight into the Four Noble Truths and he'll teach them directly how to attain enlightenment. Then, whereas compared to that, if he was teaching those who are, let's say, uh, like there was this group of businessmen, uh, merchants, and he didn't start off with them on the Four Noble Truths. Instead, he started them on um, do doing charity, practicing generosity, and then uh, observing precepts. And from there, at a certain point in time when it was suitable, he teach them how to practice and do meditation. Yeah. Um, and even for them, meditation only to lead to deeper and deeper jhana. Yeah. It was only when they reached fourth jhana that the Buddha point to enlightenment. Yeah. So at different time for different people, he teach differently. Yeah. So in that way, it is systematic but it's not structured the way we are used to. The way we are used to in school, you go there, P1, P2, P3. Yeah. So, um, sometimes, he would enunciate invariable principles that stand at the heart of the teaching. Yeah. So certain things that doesn't change, that there's a very core teachings like Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. Sometimes he would adapt the teaching to accord with the proclivities and attitudes of the people which came to him for guidance. Yeah, basically what I mentioned earlier. 
So according to the uh, propensity of the person, the person's needs, uh, background, the person's uh, understanding, they may teach, he may teach differently. Teach according, according to the student. Yeah? So sometimes he would adjust his exposition to fit a situation that required a particular response. But throughout the collection of texts that have come down to us as authorized word of the Buddha, yeah, this word of the Buddha means Buddha Vachana. Yeah, Buddha Vachana. We do not find a single sutta, a single discourse in which the Buddha has drawn together all the elements of his teaching and assigned them to their appropriate place within some comprehensive system. Now you can find this comprehensive system in Abhidhamma text, yeah, which is the commentary. So while in a literature culture in which systematic thought is highly prized, the lack of such a text within a unifying function might be viewed as a defect. In an entirely oral culture, as was the culture in which the Buddha lived and moved, the lack of a descriptive key to the Dharma would hardly be considered significant. Uh, in the Buddha's time, they go by oral tradition. Yeah. Uh, even in China, ancient China, it, it's all through memorization. Yeah. So, but even more so for the Indians, they don't even care to write it down. Yeah, in China, we started writing a long time ago. Yeah, so a bit different. Uh, so this part is basically saying that uh, for them, not having a, a that kind of structure is quite normal. Yeah, no, no problem. Within this culture, neither teacher nor student aimed at conceptual completeness. The teacher did not intend to present a complete system of ideas. His pupils did not aspire to learn a complete system of ideas. The aim that united them in the process of learning, the process of transmission, was that of practical training, self-transformation, <laughs> we just talked about that, <laughs> goodness, the realization of truth and unshakable liberation of the mind. This does not mean, however, that the teaching was always expediently adapted to the situation at hand. At times, the Buddha would present more panoramic views of the Dharma that united many components of the path in a graded or wide-ranging structure. But though there are several discourses that exhibit a broad scope, they still do not embrace all elements of the Dharma in one overarching scheme. The purpose of the present book is to develop and exemplify such a scheme. I have a attempt, I here attempt to provide a comprehensive picture of the Buddha's teaching that incorporates a wide variety of suttas into an organic structure. This structure, I hope, will bring to light the intentional pattern underlying the Buddha's formulation of the Dharma and thus provide the reader with, a, with guidelines for understanding early Buddhism as a whole. I have selected the suttas entire, almost entirely from the four major collections or Nikayas of the Pali Canon. Though I have also included a few texts from the Udana and Itibhutaka, two small books of the fifth collection, the Kudaka Nikaya. Each chapter opens with its own introduction, in which I explain the basic concepts of early Buddhism that the text 
exemplify and show how the text gives expressions to these ideas. I will briefly supply background information about the Nikayas later in this introduction. First, however, I want to outline the scheme that I have devised to organize the suttas. Although my particular use of this scheme is the original, it is not sheer innovation, but is based upon a threefold distinction that the Pali commentaries make among the types of benefits to which the practice of the Dharma leads. Yeah, so, there are three parts. Huh? Welfare and happiness visible in, the, in this present life, number one. Number two, welfare and happiness pertaining to future lives. And number three, the ultimate good, Nibbana. Yeah, Sanskrit Nibbana. So there are three parts that this book is structured. One is present life, welfare and happiness. Second part, future. And then third part, Nibbana, the ultimate good. Yeah. So three preliminary chapters are designed to lead up to those that embody this threefold scheme. Chapter one is a survey of the human condition as it is apart from the appearance of a Buddha in the world. Perhaps this was the way human life appeared to the Bodhisattva, the future Buddha, as he dwelt in the Tusita heaven, gazing down upon the earth, awaiting the appropriate occasion to descend and take his final birth. We behold a world in which human beings are driven helplessly toward old age and death, in which they are spun around by circumstances so that they are oppressed by bodily pain cast down by failure and misfortune, made anxious and fearful by change and deterioration. It is a world in which people aspire to live in harmony, but in which their untamed emotions repeatedly compel them, against their better judgment, to lock horns in conflicts that escalate into violence and wholesale devastation. Finally, taking the broadest view of all, it is a world in which sentient beings are propelled forward by their own ignorance and craving, from one life to the next, wandering blindly through the cycle of rebirths called samsara. Chapter 2 gives an account of the Buddha's descent into this world. He comes as the one person who appears out of compassion for the world, whose arising in the world is manifestation of great light. We follow the story of his conception and birth, of his renunciation and quest for enlightenment, of his realization of the Dharma, and of his decision to teach. The chapter ends with his first discourse to the five monks, his first disciples, in a deer park near Baranasi. Okay, up to this point, any thoughts or questions? When you all uh, read it uh, before, uh, most of this introduction, uh, unless you have some specifics, it is just to give you an overview of the whole book. Yeah, or going beyond the content, it gives you a bit more flavor. Yeah. Chapter three is intended to sketch the special features of the Buddha's teachings, and by implication, the attitude in which with which a prospective student would should approach the teaching. The texts tell us that the Dharma is not a secret all esoteric teaching, but one which shines when taught openly. It does not demand blind faith in authoritarian scriptures, in divine revelations, or in fallible dogmas, but invites investigation 
and appeals to personal experience as the ultimate criterion for determining its validity. The teaching is concerned with the arising and cessation of suffering, which can be observed in one's own experience. It does not set up even the Buddha as an unimpeachable authority, but invites us to examine him to determine whether he fully deserves our trust and confidence. Finally, it offers a step-by-step procedure whereby we can put the teaching to the test and by doing so, realize the ultimate truth for ourselves. Yeah, this is something that I I can't repeat more. Um, I've been highlighting this about how the the, uh, the 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 whole religion is centered on the Dharma, which focuses not on the on how this world come about, but how suffering come about and how it can be put to an end. Yeah. Uh, this is something that is quite um, in many ways different from other religion. Yeah. And so for many people when they come to Buddhism, uh, unfortunately this part is not so apparent. So most people just try to look for things that are similar to most religion. And they then hold on to that as what Buddhism is and should be. Yeah. Namely the rituals. Yeah. And then also the the dogmas. What are the things that you are allowed to do and not allowed to do? But in fact, even the precepts, yeah. If you just look at the first precept, abstaining from killing. It's not a it's not like a rule that you cannot kill. It's more that you decide, you think, you, you listen to what the Buddha has said about killing, and then you decide that, yeah, you are going to choose not to kill. Yeah, it's your personal choice. Yeah, so it's not so much an ex- In a way, it's an external rule, but uh, the approach in Buddhism is not to look at it as an external rule. But you notice that most people, when they come into Buddhism, they are exposed to Buddhism in this way. Yeah. Cannot do this, cannot do that, cannot wear this, cannot wear that, cannot eat this, cannot eat that. Must stand here, cannot stand there. Yeah. So the approach versus what is really taught by the Buddha. With chapter 4, we come to text dealing with the first of the three types of benefit the Buddha's teaching is intended to bring. This is called the welfare and happiness visible in the present life. Ditta Dharma Hitta Sukha. Welfare and happiness. Yeah, always. This is this is the few words that always uh, appear in the suttas. Welfare and happiness, or sometimes welfare and benefit. Yeah, the welfare and the benefit of all. Yeah, in this case, the one that is visible in this present life. The happiness that comes from following ethical norms in one's family relations, relationships likelihood and communal activities. Although early Buddhism is often depicted as a radical discipline of renunciation directed to a transcendental goal, the Nikayas review the Buddha to have been a compassionate and pragmatic teacher who was intent on promoting a social order in which people can live together peacefully and harmoniously in accordance with ethical guidelines. This aspect of early Buddhism is evident in the Buddha's teachings on the aspect of uh, on the duties of children to their parents. 
on the mutual obligations of husbands and wives, on right livelihood, on the duties of the ruler toward his subjects, and on the principle of communal harmony and respect. Uh, so that is the first kind. Uh, this is quite different from, again, the, the kind of uh, approach. Uh, was it you or someone who told me that the impression we sometimes get is, oh, everybody must go to Pure Land. Yeah. You last week. Yeah, last week. Yeah, so, um, the Buddha taught a lot. Yeah, and a huge chunk, uh, a certain part of it was directed to how you can live your life and interact with others in a way that would lead to happiness here and now. Yeah. Including uh, how to make a living. Yeah. That would not uh, create stress for yourself. Yeah. Mm. Uh, let me finish reading all the way to the origin of the Nikayas. Yeah. I'm taking the, 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 the opportunity to do that, otherwise I'm like... <laughs> 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 yeah, as I'm reading, I'm like, oh gosh, I can actually fall asleep while reading. <laughs> the second type of benefit to which the Buddha's teaching leads is the subject of chapter 5. Is the coffee coming at anything soon? Coffee? Your coffee is there. Oh, it's there already? <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> yeah. She's inside, she's inside the... yeah, you found a nice rest veggie restaurant. Okay, like this is the happiness achieved by okay, the second type of benefit to which the Buddha's teachings leads is the subject of chapter five, called the welfare and happiness pertaining to the future life. Yeah, so license the uh, yeah, this welfare and, and happiness uh, in Chinese is li yeah. But the way my teacher teaches that uh, li is present life, yi is long term or future life. So li is like so like the, the word e is more about the long term yeah and ultimate, yeah and also the ultimate ultimate which is uh, attaining of enlightenment yeah. anyway uh, because present life you can 
experience a lot of nice things, but it will pass away. It will end. Yeah, even future, if you can be reborn in heavenly realms, it's still short term. Yeah, so all considered short term. So this is the happiness achieved by obtaining a fortunate rebirth and success in future lives through one's accumulation of merit. The term merit, punya, refers to wholesome karma, the Sanskrit karma, considered in terms of its capacity to produce favorable results within the rounds of rebirths. I begin this chapter with a selection of texts on the teaching of karma and rebirth. This leads us to general texts on the idea of merit, followed by selections on the three principles, principal bases of merit recognized in the Buddha's discourses, giving, moral discipline, and meditation. So in Pali, it will be dana, sila, and bhavana. So you notice here, meditation is bhavana. Huh? Yeah. So in my meditation class, I always highlight this, the word bhavana. But the word bhavana, translated as meditation, uh, in my lineage, not so correct. Yeah. Because the word bhavana, in Chinese text, is translated as xiu xi. Xiu xi is xiu xi guan de xi. Basically, bhavana is, is in the Chinese trans, uh, tradition, not translated as meditation. It's actually translated more correctly as cultivation. Yeah, cultivation. Yeah, xiu xi. So, repeated changing of yourself. That's cultivation. Yeah. Uh, and, and to me, if you translate bhavana as cultivation, then it makes more sense uh, because it means if you look at the Buddha, the Buddha says a monk or uh, someone who is practicing uh, should be mindful when you are sitting, when you are walking, when you are uh, standing, when you are sleeping, when you are wearing your clothes. You know, uh, then if you use the word meditation, as uh, meditate when you are wearing your clothes, when you are shitting, when you are eating, you know, cultivate when you are doing all this. Uh, then the meaning is, you know, uh, quite different. Uh, since meditation figures prominently in the third type of benefit, the kind of meditation emphasized here as a basis for merit is that productive of the, four, the most abundant mundane fruits, the four divine habits, Brahma Vihara, cultivate particularly the development of loving kindness. Uh, chapter six is chapter six is transitional, intended to pro- prepare the way for the chapters to follow, while demonstrating that the practice of his teaching does indeed conduce to happiness and good fortune within the bounds of mundane life. In order to lead people beyond these bounds, the Buddha exposes the danger and inadequacy in all conditioned existence. He shows the defects in sensual pleasures, the shortcomings of material success, the inevitability of death, and the impermanence of all conditioned realms of being. To arouse in his disciples an aspiration for the ultimate good, Nibbana, the Buddha again and again underscores the perils of samsara. Thus, this chapter comes to a climax with two dramatic texts 
that dwell on the misery of bondage to the round of repeated death, birth and death. The following four chapters are devoted to the third benefit that the Buddha's teaching is intended to bring. The ultimate good, Paramatta, the attainment of, of Nibbana. The first of this, chapter 7, gives a general overview of the path to liberation, which is treated analytically through definitions of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path and dynamically through an account of the training of the monk. A long sutta on the graduate path surveys the monastic training from the monk's initial entry upon the life of renunciation to his attainment of arhanship, the final goal. So chapter 6 provides like the, the bridge between worldly life, yeah? how can we be happy and successful, have benefits yeah? uh, in present life, future life, but chapter 6 highlights what's the problem. Yeah. If there's no problem, then why should you go beyond it? Yeah. That is a problem. Uh, but then after that, link it to, okay, what other states are there? And then in chapter 7, we talk about how to attain that state, which is Nibbana. Yeah. So chapter 8 focuses upon the taming of the mind, the major emphasis in the monastic training. I here present texts that discuss the obstacles to mental development, the means of overcoming these obstacles, different methods of meditation and the states to be attained when the obstacles are overcome and the discipline the disciple makes uh, gains mastery over the mind. In this chapter, I introduce the distinction between samatha and vipassana, serenity and insight. The one leading to samadhi or concentration, the other to panya or wisdom. However, I include texts that treat insight only in terms of the methods used to generate it, not in terms of its actual contents. Chapter 9, titled The Shining Light of Wisdom, deals with the content of insight. For early Buddhism, and indeed for, most of, for almost all schools of Buddhism, insight or wisdom is the principal instrument of liberation. Thus, in this chapter, I focus on the Buddha's teachings about such topics developed to the development of wisdom as right view. The five aggregates, the six sense bases, the eighteen elements, dependent origination, and the four number truths. Now, you notice this is basically the very sequence. This is the very sequence uh, found in the Heart Sutra. <laughs> this is the very sequence found in the Heart Sutra. Yeah. Mm. This chapter ends with a selection of texts on Nibbana, the ultimate goal of wisdom. The final goal is not achieved abruptly, but by passing through a series of stages that transforms an individual from a whirling into an arahant, a liberated one. Thus, chapter 10, The Claims of Realization, offers a selection of texts on the main stages along the way. I first present the series of stages as a progressive sequence, then I return to the starting point and examine three major milestones within this progressive uh, progression. Stream entry, the stage of non-returner and arahanthood. I conclude with a selection of suttas on the Buddha, the foremost among the arahants, 
here spoken of under the epithet he used most often when referring to himself is a targeter. Okay, this page 5. We... Samatha. Samatha is a technique of uh, practice that helps us to pra- uh, develop concentration or tranquility. Yeah. Vipassana is a set of um, uh, techniques for us to. It literally means to see things. Yeah, see what things, mind and body, to see as they are. Yeah, to see mind and body as they are. Yeah, that's what we call insight. Uh, good. Any question, other questions? Uh, so samatha vipassana page five, uh, the top part it mentions about it. This is we say the eye. Okay. Uh, samatha is the 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 Insight or wisdom, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, next, I want to ask uh, Kelvin to help me read the next few pages. Already, uh, almost four slides. The origins of the Nisaya. The origins of the Nisaya. The texts I'm drawn upon to fill out my scheme are, as I said above, all selected from the Nisaya, the main super perfections of the Pali canon. Some words are needed to explain the origin and the nature of this process. The Buddha did not write down any of his teachings, nor were his teachings recorded in writing by his disciples. Indian culture at the time that the Buddha lived was still predominantly pre-literate. The Buddha wandered from town to town in the Ganges plain, instructing his monks and nuns, giving sermons to householders who flocked to hear him speak, answering the questions of curious inquirers, and engaging in discussions with people from all classes of society. The records of his teachings that we do not come from his own pen or from transcriptions made by those who heard the teaching from him, but from monastic councils held after his Paridipada, his passing away into Nibbana, for the purpose of preserving his teaching. Any questions? Wasifu? No? I'm going to carry on the next one. It is unlikely that the teachings that derive from these councils reproduce the Buddha's words verbatim. The Buddha must have spoken spontaneously and elaborated upon his themes in countless ways in response to the varied needs of those who sought his guidance. Preserving by oral transmission such a vast and diverse range of material would have bordered upon or would have bordered on the impossible. To mold the teachings into a format suitable for preservation, the monks responsible for the text would have had to collate and edit them to make them fit 
better fit for listening, retention, recitation, memorization, and repetition. The five major elements in oral transmission. This process, we have, which may have already been started during the Buddha's lifetime, would have led to a fair degree of simplification and standardization of the material to be preserved. During the Buddha's life, the discourses were classified into nine categories according to the literary genre. Sutta, which is prose uh, discourses. Is it pronounced Gaya? Huh? Gaya. Gaya, mixed prose and verse. Veya Karana, answers to questions. Gata, verse. Udana, inspired utterance. Itibutaka, memorable sayings. Jataka, stories of past birth. Okay, let's have a look at this. <laughs> Ab Abhuta Dhamma, marvelous qualities. And Vedala, Kedju. Huh? Any what? questions? Tatism. Right. Any questions? No? Yes? No? Okay. At some point after his passing, this older system of classification was superseded by a new scheme that ordered the text into larger collections called Nikayas in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, Agamas in the North Indian Buddhist schools. Exactly when the Nikaya Agama scheme became ascendant is not known with certainty, but once it appeared, it almost completely replaced the older system. Uh, one point about this, uh, the different categories, the nine different categories, right? This way of categorizing the Buddha's teaching, uh, this verse, these different names, right, actually appear in Yugachara Bhumisastra. Yeah, so this uh, is actually known uh, inside the, the commentaries. Yeah, it's not. This nine different ways of categorization cannot be found in the suttas, uh, although in some of these are mentioned by the Buddha, um, because the Buddha himself didn't categorize the, the, the text. It is later on categorized by others. Yeah. So what we see today uh, is a slightly different categorization, what we call the... You want to take picture, must let me know. How can I cannot take, must be there. So the Nikayas uh, have a slightly different way of uh, grouping them, but the the earlier form, right, uh, is retained inside the commentaries. Yeah, the commentaries did mention about these different uh, forms. What uh, so the Ipibuttaka and the Tataka are actually separate, right? This actually are the fifth Nikaya? No. This Ipibuttaka uh, is different from that Ipibuttaka. Okay. It's the same word. Yeah. But that one is based on the, the lady who the recited it. The servant, right? Yeah. Who recited it. Yeah. This is basically just grouping all those that are memorable same. Yeah. So over here, the last part of this paragraph, it mentioned about Nikaya and Agama. Yeah. So Nikaya, we are reading all the Nikayas. This is uh, found inside the Theravada schools, the Pali Canon. The, in the Chinese tradition, we belong to the Chinese tradition, and our texts mainly come from the northern India. 
So, uh, but some of our texts actually come from the, uh, actually contains Kali texts also. Yeah. Uh, but here you can see that Agamas, Ahatim, yeah. Or the earlier translation is Atimo, yeah. Agama, yeah. Atimo. So it's actually in the North Indian Buddhist school. Yeah. So it is not that Chinese created our own sutras. Oh. So, so what is the Ahan thing that we were talking about during lunch? Yeah, yeah. Uh, continue. The Kula Vaga, one of Chula the Vaga. Chula Vaga. Yeah. Chula, okay. Yeah. Chula Vaga, one of the books in the Pali Vinaya Pitaka, gives an account of how the authorized texts were compiled at the first Buddhist council, held three months after the Buddha's Parinibbana. According to this report, shortly after the Buddha's death, the elder Mahakaspa, the de facto head of the Sangha, selected 500 monks, all arahants or liberated ones, to meet and compile an authoritative version of the teachings. The council took place during the reigns retreat at Rajagaha, modern Rajya. The capital of Magadha, then the dominant state of Middle India. Mahakaspa first requested the Venerable Upali, the former specialist on disciplinary methods, to recite the Vinaya. On the basis of this recitation, the Vinaya Pitaka, the compilation on discipline, was compiled. Mahakaspa then asked the Venerable Ananda to recite the Dhamma, that is, the discourses, and on the basis of this recitation, the Sutta Pitaka, the compilation of discourses, was compiled. The Tsula Vaga the Tula Vaga states that when Ananda recited the Sutta Pitaka, the Nikayas had the same contents as they do now, with the suttas arranged in the same sequence as they now appear in the Pali Canon. This narrative doubtlessly records past history through the lens of a later period. The Gamas of the Buddhist schools other than the Theravada corresponds to the four main Nikayas. Theravada. Theravada corresponds to the four main Yes. But they classify suttas differently and arrange the contents in a different order from the Pali Nikayas. This suggests that if the Nikaya Agama arrangement did arise at the first council, the council had not yet assigned suttas to the definitive places within the scheme. Alternatively, it is possible that this scheme arose at a later time. It could have arisen at some point after the first council, but before the Sangha split into different schools. If it arose during the age of the sectarian divisions, it might have been introduced by one school and then been borrowed by others, so that the different schools would assign their texts to different places within the scheme. While the Tulavaga account of the First Council may include legendary material mixed with historical fact, there seems no reason to doubt Ananda's role in the preservation of the discourses. As a Buddha's personal attendant, Ananda had learned the discourses from him and the other great disciples, kept them in mind and taught them to others. During the Buddha's life, he was praised for his retentive capacities and was appointed foremost of those who have learned much. Kaparasis Bahu Sutanam Few monks have, might have had memories that 
could equal Ananda's, but already during Buddha's lifetime, individual monks must have already begun to specialize in particular types. The standardization and simplification of the material would have facilitated memorization. Once the text became classified into Nikayas or Gamas, the challenges of preserving and transmitting the textual heritage were solved by organizing the textual specialists into companies dedicated to specific collections. Different companies within the Sangha could thus focus on memorizing and interpreting different collections and the community as a whole could avoid placing excessive demands on the memories of indigenous monks. It is in this way that the teachings would continue to be transmitted for the next three or four hundred years until they were finally committed to writing. Okay. So this thing about um, uh, organization, yeah, uh, in various other translations, this was also mentioned about how they they group uh, the the nikayas and algamas are grouped by their length, then by their topic and by numbers. Yeah. So this helped to facilitate memorization. There are those who can memorize many, uh, a series of very long texts. Yeah, but you ask them to memorize a lot of things, they can't memorize. There are those who can memorize a lot of things, but must be similar things. Yeah, similar things they can memorize. Yeah, so, uh, depending on the, the on this, then it is said that the Nikayas became formal. up yeah, to facilitate memorization. Uh, then later on, it became committed to writing. Once, once it's committed to writing, then uh, it's, there's no need to, to, to worry about those who can memorize or not. Yeah, but that structure was really there for three to four hundred years. Yeah, so nobody is about to like, ah, oh, you know what, maybe we should re, re, restructure, you know. In the centuries following the Buddha's death, the Sangha became divided over disciplinary and doctrinal issues until by the 3rd century, after the Paridipana, there were at least 18 schools of sectarian Buddhism. Each sect probably had its own collection of texts, regarded more or less as uh, canonical. Although it is possible that several closely affiliated sects shared the same collection of authorized texts, while the different Buddhist schools may have organized the collections differently and through their suttas show differences of detail, the individual suttas are often remarkably similar, sometimes almost identical, and the doctrines and practices that they delineate are essentially the same. The doctrinal differences between the schools did not arise from the suttas themselves, but from the interpretations that textual specialists imposed on them. Such differences hardened after the rival schools formalized their philosophical principles in treatises and commentaries expressive of their distinctive standpoints on doctrinal issues. So far as we can determine, the refined philosophical systems had only minimal impact on the original texts themselves, which the schools seemed dis disinclined to manipulate to suit their doctrinal agendas. Instead, by means of their commentaries, they endeavoured to interpret the suttas in such a way as to draw out ideas that supported their own views. It is not unusual for such interpretations to appear defensive and contrived, apologetic against the words of the original text themselves. Okay, thank you. Uh, so this part uh, talks about how 
post the Agamas, then a few hundred years later, there's this some kind of a division yeah, where they start to have differences. Yeah, and uh, the word canonical, when we say something is canon or not canon, uh, it means that it is the like authentic, the original, the way it was. Yeah. Um, so, like, uh, worldly example, uh, you know Star Wars? Mm. Yeah. The ones, the six, the first three episodes produced by George, Luke, uh, George Lucas, uh, that's canon. Yeah. Uh, the first three episodes, although produced by him also, uh, well, it's considered canon, but the diehard fans will just ignore it. Then there are some of the uh, books that is also written under Star Wars, uh, but not considered canon. Yeah. So canon means official, like official, you know. So whenever... <coughs> so here it says each sect probably had its own collection of texts, regarded more or less as canonical, meaning that they have their own set of texts which they say this is official. This is the official teaching that the Buddha said. Oh. Uh, but uh, the interesting point here that uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi highlights is that while they have differences in views, but the key text, they don't dare to go and change it, change much of it, uh, or at all. What they do instead is that they write commentaries to interpret the text and then quarrel on that, in a way quarrel on that, debate on that. Uh, so if you look at the fundamental text between the schools, even until today, fundamentally uh, the same. Okay, uh, five more pages before we manage to reach the actual text. Yes, come on. Okay, uh, Louis, you want to read or you want to skip? Skip. Okay. Uh, orange. <laughs> the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon, thirdly, the canonical collections belonging to most of the early mainstream Indian Buddhist schools were lost when Indian Buddhism was devastated by the Muslims that invaded northern India in the 11th and 12th centuries. These evasions effectively sounded the death knell for Buddhism in the land of its birth. Only one complete collection of texts belonging to one of the early Indian Buddhist schools managed to survive intact. This is the collection preserved in the language that we know as Pali. This collection belonged to the ancient Theravada school, which had been transplanted to Sri Lanka in the 3rd century BCE and thus managed to escape the havoc brought upon Buddhism in the motherland. About the same time, the Theravada also spread to Southeast Asia and in later centuries became dominant throughout the region. Uh, so, a few words here. Uh, the, this is a bit more uh, about the English language, the death knell, this is actually a, a common expression inside li English literature. Uh, it, is a, it is a metaphor, yeah, like uh, in, in, in ancient times, uh, they would sound a bell to indicate a time for execution. Yeah, so the death knell 
Yeah, you find it frequently in Shakespeare, Shakespeare Sassidia. In Shakespeare play, they talk about the death now. Yeah, uh, it means it doesn't always. Sometimes literally meaning that the the bell was uh, hit, but it is also an expression to indicate to mean that something is an indicator of the death of something. Yeah, that once that happened, uh, once A happened, B is going to die. Yeah. So in this case, the 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 these invasions effectively sounded the death knell for Buddhism. Yeah. So once the Muslims invaded northern uh, India, uh, it basically marked the start of the death, marked the start of the end of Buddhism. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, uh, BCE before Common Era. Yeah. In Buddhist texts, we will you see this very often, and in fact, in uh, recent times, most most writers will also use BCE also, uh, non-Buddhists also. Uh, only Christians will still write BC because uh, it means before Christ. BC means before Christ. Yeah, I think I mentioned before about the CE and BC. Uh, the other one that was let me see. Okay, yeah, continue. The Pali Canon is the collection of texts that Theravada regards as word of the Buddha, Buddha Wachana. Mm. The fact that the texts of this collection have survived as a single canon does not mean that they can all be dated from the same period, nor does it mean that the text forming its most archaic nucleus are necessarily more ancient than their counterparts from the other Buddhist schools, many of which have survived in Chinese or Tibetan translation as parts of entire canons or in a few cases as isolated texts in another Indian language. Nevertheless, the, pa nevertheless, the Pali canon has a special importance for us and that is so for, that is so for at least three reasons. First, it is a complete collection or belonging to a single school. Even though we can detect clear signs of historical development between different portions of the canon, this alignment with a single school gives the text a certain degree of uniformity. Among the texts stemming from the same period, we can even speak of a homogeneity of context. A single flavour underlying the manifold expressions of the doctrine. This homogeneity is most evident in the four Nikayas and the older parts of the fifth Nikaya, and give us reason to believe that this, with these texts, allowing for the qualification expressed above, that they have counterparts in other existing Buddhist schools. We have reached the most ancient stratum of Buddhist literature discoverable. Second, the entire collection has been preserved in a Middle Indo-Aryan language, one closely related to the language, or more likely the various regional dialects that the Buddha himself spoke. We call this language Pali, but the name for the language actually arose through a misunderstanding. The word Pali properly means text, that is, the canonical text as distinct from the commentaries. 
The commentators refer to the language in which the texts are preserved as Pali Vasa, the language of the text. At some point, the term was misunderstood to mean the Pali language. <laughs> and once the misconception yeah, arose, it took root and has been with us ever since. Scholars regard this language as a hybrid showing features of several Prakrit dialects used around the 3rd century BCE, subjected to a partial process of Sanskritization. While the language is not identical with any of the any the Buddha himself who has spoken, it belongs to the same broad linguistic family as those he might have used and originates from the same conceptual matrix. This language thus reflects the thought world that the Buddha inherited from the wider Indian culture into which he was born, so that its words capture the subtle nuances of that thought world without the intrusion of alien influences inevitable in even the best and most scrupulous translations. This contrasts with Chinese, Tibetan, or English translations of the text, which reverberate with the connotations of the words chosen from the target languages. Okay, that's a bit clear. So, the Pali language uh, is, is a very interesting thing that I read um, many years back about how the word Pali actually means text. Yeah, then it got mixed up and become the Pali language. Yeah, but you notice Pali Bahasa, yeah. Uh, today we call it Bahasa, yeah, in Malay, yeah, and in Indonesia. Mm. Yeah, it's actually just referring to the same word. Okay. Yeah, if, I, if I'm not wrong in this case, Bahasa. Mm. In fact, I just heard over the radio about the 10 oldest language in the world. Uh, Latin is the 10th, uh -huh. surprisingly. Uh -huh. The fifth is Chinese, uh, the third is Sanskrit, uh -huh. and the oldest language in the world, Tamil. Oh wow! <laughs> Chinese is fifth. Fifth, yeah. which a lot of people thought probably Chinese would be the oldest, mm. but apparently it turned out Tamil was is the oldest language in the world. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Sanskrit only reached number three. Number three, yeah. Then number two. I can't remember what number two was, but oh, Egyptian. Egyptian. Oh. Egyptian was also a very old language. So okay. you'd be surprised that even Latin, which a lot of people think would be old, is oh, no, it's not very old. Because if you think about it, Latin is is predominantly during the Roman Empire. Yep. So it's about 2000 odd years. Yeah. Whereas Chinese, we stop about 5000 years. <laughs> or more. Uh, Lao Tzu could be before Lao Tzu, yeah. but he, he was it him? Yeah, Lao Tzu is Lao Tzu, Fa Ming Yuan. Because before Lao Tzu, there's Jiao Hu Wen already. But Lao Tzu is Lao Tzu is Lao Tzu is Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu 
之前没有了，对吗？老鼠之前没有其他的死了。啊，对，对吗？对对对。老 ，If I'm not wrong， 老鼠 is about two thousand five five four five hundred years ago。哦，是的。啊，你找一找。可能老子是不大的徒弟。老子不是，老子应该属于是圣门人。啊，贤贤贤啊，贤。呀，从从佛教，从菩提正了，是是在是不缺的，很不缺贤人。他不是，他他在佛教不算是圣。贤了，连上去是圣圣啊，圣贤。呃，老子应该可能可能有一些文字的部分，他他有他可以算是那个吧，但是因为甲骨文是更早了，对对啊，老子我是光年宝的的 writing， 周代的是 fifth to sixth century BC， 啊 BC 吧，行，啊，就是公元前五啊五世纪。He died. He died. Five three one BC. Ah, around there. Because I remember that three major persons arise. One was, I think, Plato in ancient Greece, then Buddha, and then Lao Tzu. Three different places around the same time. Ah, but ah among the people, wow. And with this new thinking, ah, among the people, wow, the whole society just shifted. Yeah, it's like suddenly, oh, got smartphone, <laughs> suddenly got handphone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I I saw some document about how when writing came about. Yeah, writing is one of the the most one of the very key invention that allow us to. To improve tremendously, yeah, as a human race, yeah, because now suddenly it's not just what you can remember in your lifetime, but whatever we can remember becomes collective, yeah, and you can pass things down, yeah, as a whole we have memory as a species already, yeah, so we can learn things. Otherwise, this life, this one don't know whether can it up that. Okay, right. Continue. The third reason the Pali Canon has special importance is that this collection is authoritative for a contemporary Buddhist school. Unlike the textual collections of the extant schools of early Buddhism, which are purely of academic interest. This collection still brings with life. It inspires the fate of millions of Buddhists from the villages and monasteries of Sri Lanka, Myanmar, and Southeast Asia to the cities and meditation centers of Europe and the Americas. It shapes their understanding, guides them in the face of difficult ethical choices, it informs their meditative practices. And offers them the keys to liberating insight. I have something to say about this paragraph. This third reason it says why it has special importance, and is that 
this collection is authoritative for a contemporary Buddhist school. Contemporary meaning that it is still, it is the present. That means it's something that is not the past. Yeah, it's a present Buddhist school. Um, one thing to highlight, uh, it is with, it's in comparison with the early Buddhism, the extinct schools of early Buddhism. So there were 18 schools. Yeah, in the, about, let me see, about two, three hundred years after the Buddha passed away, uh, Buddhism spread and then evolved to 18 different schools in India itself. So there were two broad uh, schools, uh, Theravada and Mahasanghika. The Mahasanghika is not Da Chena, it's Da Zhongfu. Mahasanghika. Literally means Da Zhongfu. Then Theravada is Sang Zhongfu. Yeah. Sang the word Sang literally means uh, uh, higher, higher block or higher seat. Yeah. In, the, in this context, it means higher seat. What does it mean by higher seat? So, like, actually, he, she's sitting too high uh, in contrast to me. Yeah, so in a traditional setting, she cannot sit there and listen to Dhamma. Uh, so the, the, the senior yeah, will always be given the high seat. Yeah, so uh, this term, the high seat, uh, refers to those who are elders. Yeah, so Tera Wada, Tera uh, is referring to the elders. Yeah, then translated to Chinese, they call it Sang Zuopu, because the elders are always given the the high seat. So the high seat also refers to the elder. Yeah. So like even today when we talk to fellow senior monks, right, we actually use this term. Yeah. Even within the Chinese tradition. Sometimes we uh, in a very uh, somewhat casual way we will say, oh Sang Zuo Bichu meaning that this is a senior. Yeah. So the word Terawada refers to those who are the senior monks. Uh, how did this term Theravada come about? It has to do with the first, not the second council, when they were having controversy between how certain practices are done. And the, that was when uh, the, the early form of Theravada and Mahasanghika came about. Yeah. Uh, because of a dispute, one of the points of concern was money. Can handle money or not? So there was a monk who uh, who saw that in the west, uh, in the west east, uh, in the eastern side, the the monks were all receiving money and using money. So he was like, "Hey, this is not right." So what happened is that um, the, the 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 local monks uh, like was not happy with what he said and. Uh, the lay people also not happy. With, everybody is not happy with what he said, and basically asked him to apologize. And he agreed, call for a meeting, and then he told them all for something. Yeah. Then so of course they're not happy. Yeah. So he went back to the west, looked for the elders, and brought back seven hundred elders. That's a lot, uh, seven hundred. SGC only hundred, no. <laughs> seven times of that, and all elders, no. Not junior monks, all elders. Yeah, to you. 
Yeah, I'm not saying this gang fight. <laughs> <laughs> he went to in Hokkien we call Tiao Chui. Tiao Chui or Tiao Bring his gang. Pull, pull the gang. Yeah. 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 700 elders. 700 elders. Oh, this so one. So came over, then uh, informed the king, and the king listened. Okay. Oh, I've got so many, so many elders. So the king is said to have uh, convened uh, the, 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 the council, the second council. Then they they recited the elders all recited the denaya and established this is correct this is not correct. But those who were the lo- locals they were, they didn't stop there. You have council right? We example our own council. They, so they they assembled seven hundred elders from the council recited. They assembled ten thousand monks. <laughs> Ten thousand monks. Can you imagine? Seven hundred and then ten thousand. Was this in Sri Lanka too? No. India still. In India. So this was the second Buddhist council. Yes. Yeah. And for this right, because now there are two schools, right? Oh, no. At this point still not two school yet. So from there, this this second group they became known as the Great Assembly. Because by sheer number is a great assembly. And then this became the name that they were referred to as Maha Sangika. Okay. Uh, yeah. But from this point onwards it became two schools. Uh, gradually formed. Okay, but is it considered schism of the Sangha or it's it's a separate matter? Because I remember the five things that yes. we are not supposed Yeah, to. so uh, is this a schism? What we call the uh, uh, that means breaking up of the community. The interesting thing is that although they, they, have, they have this agreement, but uh, when Xuan Zhang Da Si came to India, when various masters went to India, they, what they saw is that they are from different schools, but they still have meetings together. Yeah, so they just disagree, but they are still together. Uh, uh, but at later point, then they totally went their way. La. Some, I think, in some ways. Uh, is it because it's just um, their differences is just based on the practice, not really on the main teachings. That's why it's not exactly as easy. In a way, yeah. In a way, yeah. So they may have hit the argument, but even um, how many years later? Thousand two hundred years later, after the Buddha passing. When Xuan Chang Da Si went to India, when Fa Xian Fa Si went to India, they recorded that they see monks from different lineage within a same compound. Uh, so they are still in harmony. Who so second council was doing the King Asoka? I think, was it King Asoka? King Asoka was going to send his son, who is Arhan, to. Uh, Chilaka, right? that, maybe the third already. Is it the third or second? Yeah, I had to check. Yeah. But second council was over uh, practices about what can do, what cannot do. Third council was about slightly different views about the the principles already. Yeah. So if you look at the Abhidharma under uh, Katabatu, uh, that's one book. Yeah. Abhidharma or the Theravada? 
Theravada. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in the Chinese canon, you will see Abhidhamma under the collection of Abhidhamma. There's many different versions. Yeah. They just they don't care about the school. Whatever school I collect. Yeah. Whereas for Theravada, they only retain the Theravada Abhidhamma. Then in the seven books, one of the books, Katabatu, points of controversy. Uh, that lists out uh, the different points that the different schools have opinions about. And that's also where you see the different schools' name appear. Yeah, like, uh, uh, of course, Theravada is there. Then you can see Dhammagupta, uh, Savastivadan, Mula Savastivadan, and so on. But all these schools are no longer around. Uh, and, and this is the point here, that of all the 18 schools, only Theravada is left. Yeah. Uh, however, the other 17 schools, the uh, different points of their teachings were, are retained inside our, our Chinese canon. Uh, mm. Tibetan, they, uh, like the yellow school in Tibetan school, I, I'm not so sure about there are four schools in Tibetan uh, in Tibet yeah so I know that Galupa which is the yellow school the main the, the main text is from the Mula Savastivadan school yeah. so I don't think they retain or they they got the transmission of other schools text whereas on Chinese Buddhism while it's not like 100% complete of everything but they actually retained multiple sets of the Vinaya uh, and they recorded down the, the commentary from different schools. In the past, my teacher said, if you want to learn the teachings, you don't have to go to other schools. Yeah, I mean, for someone who can read Chinese. Uh, he says, because the Chinese Tripitaka is most comprehensive. To be very honest, when I was newly ordained, I hear this, I'm a bit like, sure not. <laughs> yeah, in my mind. Yeah, because although I respect my teacher, but I question mark like feels a bit like oh because you are from Chinese tradition, so you hard sell you know you upsell your own uh, lineage. But over the years, I start to appreciate that yeah, the Chinese lineage really uh, because in the early days, the Chinese translators they don't belong to this or that school, so they just brought back everything. Ham plum, everything brought back. Yeah. so like our Vinaya. It's a composite of a few schools, but the key school is Dhamma Gupta. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, for those who are really learning the Dibinaya, we when we learn our text Sifanli, um, the Vinaya master would refer to the different schools and then point out that under this rule, uh, how, how many schools have differences, and then they will highlight the present uh, uh, Theravada, and in Chinese it's called Tok. Tong Tie Fu. Ours is Tamo Te Fu, Dhamma Gupta. Yeah. So a lot of people think that ours is very different, but actually, as far as Vinaya is concerned, uh, we are also Theravada. Yeah. Dhamma Gupta is under Theravada. And because we learn the different schools, so we know exactly how similar and how different it is. Um, it, it shouldn't mean that, oh, we are superior in any way, but it means that it helps us to be more understanding and to realize that um, really at the, at the core, we are not that different. <laughs> so do you have more Vinaya rules than Theravada? We have. We have 250, Theravada has 227. 
episode 23 more from yeah. bearing the the key the key difference is actually at the uh, the part about the the training rules sekia rules yeah uh, you have 25 extra there then we have uh, two more less in one of the sections so giving you the difference but the other major set of the rules are identical Oh, okay. Go toilet, then come back, then go and go. Go to. Well, I'm not your fault, because today I had this, uh, the, the something on that, the Poya Yeah, sorry. I was sitting out to you. Go, go, go.我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我我
the compilation of philosophy, a collection of seven treatises which subject the Buddha's teachings to rigorous philosophical systemization. The Abhidhamma Pitaka is obviously the product of a later phase in the evolution of Buddhist thought than the other two Pitakas. The Pali version represents the Theravada school's attempt to systematize the older teachings. Other early schools apparently had their own Abhidhamma systems. The Swastivada system, system is the only one whose canonical text has survived intact in their entirety. Its canonical collection, like the Pali version, also consists of seven texts. Mm, these were originally composed in Sanskrit but are preserved in full only in Chinese translation. <laughs> the system they define differs significantly from that of its Theravada counterpart in both formulation and philosophy. The Sutta Pitaka, which contains the records of the Buddha's discourses and discussions, consists of five collections called Nikayas. In the age of the commentators, they were also known as Agamas, like their counterparts in Northern Buddhism. The four major Nikayas are the Diga Nikaya, the collection of long discourses, 34 suttas arranged into three vergas or books. The Majima Nikaya, the collection of middle-length discourses, 152 suttas arranged into three vagas. 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 The Samyutta Nikaya, the collection of connected discourses close to 3,000 short suttas grouped into 56 chapters called Samyuttas, which are in turn collected into five vagas. The Anguttara Nikaya, the collection of numerical discourses, or perhaps incremental discourses, approximately 2,400 short suttas arranged into 11 chapters called Nipatas. The Diga Nikaya and Majima Nikaya, at first glance, seem to be established principally on the basis of length. The longer discourses go into Diga, the middle-length discourses into the Majima. Careful tabulations of their contents, however, suggest that another factor might underline the distinction between these two collections. The suttas of the Diga Nikaya are largely aimed at a popular audience and seem intended to attract potential converts to the teaching by demonstrating the superior of the Buddha and his doctrine. The suttas of the Majima Nikaya are largely directed inward toward the Buddhist community and seem designed to acquaint newly ordained monks with the doctrines and practices of Buddhism. It remains an open question whether these pragmatic purposes are the determining criteria behind these two Nikayas or whether the primary criterion is length. 
with these pragmatic, pragmatic purposes following as incidental consequences of their respective differences in length. The Samyutta Nikaya is organized by way of subject matter. Each subject is the yoke, Samyoga, that connects the discourses into a Samyutta or chapter. Hence, the title of the collection, The Connected Samyutta Discourses. The first book, the book with verses, is unique in being compiled on the basis of literary genre. It contains suttas in mixed prose and verse, arranged in 11 chapters by way of subject. The other four books each contain long chapters dealing with the principal doctrines of early Buddhism. Books 2, 3 and 4 each open with a long chapter devoted to a theme of major importance, respectively, dependent origination, chapter 12, Nidana Samyutta, The Five Aggregates, Chapter 22, Kanda Samyutta, and The Six Internal and External Sense Bases, Chapter 35, Salayatana Samyutta. Part 5 deals with the principal groups of training factors that, in the post-canonical period, came to be called the 37 Eights to the Enlightenment, Bodhi, Bodhi Hakiya Dhamma. These include the Noble Eightfold Path, Chapter 45, Maga Samyutta, The Seven Factors of Enlightenment, Chapter 46, Bhujanga Samyutta, and the Four Establishments of Mindfulness, Chapter 47, Satipatthana Samyutta. From its contents, we might infer that the Samyutta Nikaya was intended to serve the needs of two groups within the monastic order. One consisted of the doctrinal specialist, these monks and nuns who sought to explore the deep implications of the Dharma and to elucidate them for their companions in their religious life. The other consisted of those devoted to the meditative development of insight. The Anguttara Nikaya is arranged according to, the, to a numerical scheme derived from a peculiar feature of the Buddha's pedagogic pedagogic method. To facilitate easy comprehension and memorization, the Buddha often formulated his discourses by way of numerical sets, a format that helped to ensure that the ideas he conveyed would be easily retained in mind. The Anguttara Nikaya assembles these numerical discourses into a single massive work of 11 nipatas or chapters, each representing the number of terms upon which the constituent suttas have been framed. Thus, there is the chapter of the ones, Ika Kanipata, the chapter of the twos, Dukkha Nipata, the, chapters of, the chapter of the trees, Tika Nipata, and so forth. Up yeah. to and ending with the chapter of the 11th, yeah. Ekadasa Nipata. You all remember her joke? 
Since the various groups of path factors have been included in the simulator, the Angutara can focus on those aspects of their training that have not been incorporated in their repetitive sets. The Angutara includes a notable proportion of suttas addressed to lay followers dealing with the ethical and spiritual concerns of life within the world, including family relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, and the proper ways to acquire, save, and utilize wealth. Other suttas deal with the practical training of monks. The numerical arrangement of this collection makes it particularly convenient for formal instruction and thus it could easily be drawn upon by the elder monks when teaching their pupils and by preachers when giving sermons to the laity. Okay, so, so far the four Nikayas one, one thing to note in the previous page, there's Tipitaka or Tipitaka. The, in the Pali canon, it is Vinaya, Sutta and Abhidharma. But in the Chinese Tipitaka, it is Sutta, then Vinaya, then Abhidharma. Yeah, so it is said that from these differences, these subtle differences, um, it is said that the, the early um, formulators of these two, these two groups uh, focus slightly differently. Yeah. Although it's all taught by the Buddha, but one group uh, has special inclination to focus on Vinaya as most fundamental, whereas the other group focuses on the teachings, uh, the discourses as most fundamental. Yeah. So it uh, doesn't mean that they throw away the other part completely, yeah? No. But it's just at the emphasis. Yeah. So Chinese Sing Li Lun, Sutta, Vinaya, then Abhidhamma. Yeah. But uh, mm. how does Abhidhamma translate? I, I understand what they describe, but if it is after uh, mm. the Sutta and the Vinaya, so how does it come into it? Yeah. So it was never in the first council. The, the, the third collection, Abhidhamma, mm. is actually not in the first council. It came in later. Yeah. But if you look at Abhidhamma text itself in the first opening, it talks about how uh, they typically uh, say that in the Theravadan tradition, it is said that uh, it is taught by Venerable Sariputra. Yeah. Uh, and it is actually taught by the Buddha to Venerable Sariputra, then passed on to Venerable Nanda. Yeah. Or rather, Venerable Sariputra to his students, to his disciples. Uh, but today, I think most people agree that Abhidharma comprises basically of commentaries. Yeah, commentaries. Uh, but then, what I described is inside the Abhidharma. Uh, so, uh, so, those who are like, who, who stick on to the part saying that Abhidharma is directly from Buddha to Sariputra, Sariputra to Varabha Ananda. 
would then say that, well, it is part of the canon. Yeah, it is part of the canon. Uh, and today, I think there's no doubt that it came later. Yeah, it came later. Oh. Okay, I'm going to... Uh, do you want to... I, I continue reading. Uh. Okay. <laughs> Is that why Michelle went off first? <laughs> you, you lost her at the word Nikaya. That's why you can tell me. So, besides the four major Nikayas, the Pali Sutta Nikaya, Apitaka, includes a fifth Nikaya called the Kudaka Nikaya. Uh, so, if you, if you were to refer to the other schools, in the Chinese canon, we only have four Angamas. Yeah, the fifth one don't exist. But the text that you find in the Kudaka Nikaya, such as the uh, Dhammapada, uh, is by itself within the Chinese canon. Yeah. Uh, so some suggest that when the Chinese translators like Tang Xuanzang, when the Venerable Xuanzang went to India, uh, at that point in time, this Kudaka Nikaya may not have existed yet. Yeah, which is like 1,200 years after the Buddha really. Yeah. So Kudaka Nikaya most agree that while some of the texts are quite early, the, 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 the step to compile them together as a, as a Nikaya came later. Uh, oh. This means that the minor collection, yeah, the, this name means the minor collection. Yeah, sometimes I will refer to it as the small text, oh, Kudaka Nikaya. Perhaps it originally consisted merely of a number of minor works that could not be included in the four major Nikayas. But as more and more works were composed over the centuries and added to it, its dimensions swelled until it became the most voluminous of the five Nikayas. At the heart of the Kudaka, however, is a small constellation of short works composed entirely, uh, either entirely in verse namely the Dhammapada, the Theravata and the Terigata, or in mixed prose and verse, the Suttanipata, the Udana and the Itibhutaka, whose style and contents suggest that they are of great antiquity. Yeah, so, the Theravata and Terigata are the verses, are the utterance, the words that those uh, senior monks and nuns say after they attain enlightenment. Yeah. So usually these are these two texts can be quite inspiring. You'll hear them talk about their struggle for for decades. Yeah. Other texts of the Kudaka Nikaya, such as the Patisam Patisambita Maga and the Fu Nidesa represent the standpoint of the Theravada school and thus must have been composed during the period of sectarian Buddhism, when the early schools had taken their separate paths of doctrinal development. The four Nikayas of the Pali Canon have counterparts in the Agamas of the Chinese Tripitaka, though these are from different early schools. Corresponding to each respectively, there is a Dega, Dega Gama, uh, probably stemming from the Dhammagupta school. Yeah, so that's what I mentioned about Dhammagupta. Yeah. Originally translated from a Pakrit, uh, Madhyamaga, 
Mandya, Mangama. Yeah. This is actually the Majima Nikaya. Yeah. So Madhyama, Madhyama is like the uh, middle, yeah, but in Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. Then Samyuk, Samyukta Gama, both stemming from the Shravastivada school and translate from Sanskrit. And an Ekotara Gama, corresponding to the Anguttara Nikaya, generally thought to have belonged to a branch of the Mahasanghita school. Uh, I mentioned about the Mahasanghita school. Actually, Mahasanghita school is the is the umbrella body. Yeah, but there's one school within that's also called Mahasanghita. The rest sort of like splinter from it. Yeah. So the Chinese texts. Uh huh. The various schools. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we yeah we we collected everything. Okay. Yeah, and to have been translated from a dialect of Middle Indo-Aryan or mixed the dialect of Hakrit with Sanskrit elements. The Chinese Tripitaka also contains translations of individual sutras from the four collections, perhaps from still other un unidentified schools, and translations of individual books from the minor collection, including two translations of a Dhammapada, one said to be very close to the Pali version, and parts of the Sutta Nipata, which as a unified work does not exist in Chinese translation. A note on style. Readers of the Pali Suttas are often annoyed by the repetitiveness of the text. <laughs> it is difficult to tell how much of this stems from the Buddha himself, who as an itinerant preacher must have used repetition to reinforce his points and how much is due to the compilers. It is obvious, however, that a high portion, proportion of the repetitiveness derives from the process of oral transmission. To avoid excessive repetitiveness in the translation, I have had to make ample uses of Ellison's. Ellison's is a dot dot dot. Huh? In this respect, I follow the printed edition of the Pali text, which are also highly abridged. So the process of putting a dot 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 and then they put down as per paragraph one. This is to bridge. Yeah. So it's a form of abridging. Yeah. So instead of repeating the whole chunk of the text again and again, they just put something, something, dot 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 and you should know that it is repeating it anymore. But a translation intended for contemporary reader requires still more compression if it is to risk uh, avoid risking the reader's wrath. You are not laughing, so let me explain that. <laughs> it means uh, it, he's, he's being a bit tongue-in-cheek, being a bit cheeky here, uh, saying that the original is very massive. So the, 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 the early text, right, they put dot 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 so that it's not so it's repetitive. So it says that uh, in this case, for modern uh, present-day reader, you need to compress it further. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you will create, you will incur the the reader's wrath. Mm -hmm. Yeah, meaning that the reader will get pick uh. mm -hmm. On the other hand, I have been keen to see that nothing essential to the original text, including the flavor, has been lost due to the abridgment. The ideals of considerateness to the reader and fidelity of the text sometimes make contrary demands on the translator. The treatment of a repetition 
patterns in which the same utterance is made regarding a set of items is a perpetual problem in translating Palit Suttas. When translating a sutta about the five aggregates, for example, one is tempted to forgo the enumeration of the individual aggregates and instead turn the sutta into a general statement about the aggregates as a class. To my mind, such an approach leads turning translation into paraphrase and thereby losing too much of the original. My general policy has been to translate the full utterance in relation to the first and last members of the set and merely to enumerate the intermediate members separated by ellipse, ellipses points. Thus, in a sutta about the five aggregates, I rendered the statement in full only for form and consciousness, and in between having a half feeling, perception, volition, no formations, implying thereby that the full statement likewise applies to them. So in uh, in the Heart Sutra, we have. Uh, so Xiang Xing Si Ifu Ru Si. Yeah, it's the same treatment here. Mm-hmm. It says like feelings, perception, the same applies to feelings, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Yeah, so the Chinese translation, they sort of like compress in this way. Yeah. This approach has required the frequent use of ellipses, points, a practice that also invites criticism. When faced with repetitive passages in the narrative work, I have sometimes condensed them rather than use ellipsis points to show where text is being deleted. However, with texts of doctrinal exposition, I adhere to the practice described in the preceding paragraph. I think the translator has the responsibility when translating passages of doctrinal significance to show exactly where text is being deleted, and for this, ellipsis points remain the best tool at hand. So this is more about the approach on the last part. So, we now go into the actual text, the human condition. Introduction. Introduction. I was so excited. Ah, introduction. And the introduction is another two, four, six, seven pages. There's a chapter on Agamas. Mm-hmm. If you read the Pali Canon, you probably you can skip the Agamas. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because the, the differences is very minor. Okay. Uh, but the rest of it, there's a lot of other sutras that's not in the Pali Canon. Okay. Yeah. That highlights the Bodhisattva path, the Mahayana uh, teachings and so on. In that case, how about the translation? Is there like text readily available yeah. translated? Yeah, all in. Translated in Chinese? <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's, there's one text. 
called The Way to Buddhahood, mm-hmm. uh, written by Master Ying Sun. Yeah, Ying Sun Dao, Chen Fu Zi Dao. Way to Buddhahood. Okay. You should be able to find it online as well. Okay. Hello, Toy Dong. Yeah. It's really funny. Yeah, video of him. Yeah. Overly friendly. Yeah. The filthy on my head. I'm friendly. Yeah. Hey, hey. 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 Uh, yes. Look at this coin. Look at this dog that's more like a coin than a dog. Look at the way the dog. The, the, the dog walks. It's like a toy. Agam. Yeah. Yeah, so that's one text that you keep. Um, Ikshun. Uh, y I N S H U N. Yeah. Okay, let's take five. Yeah, let's take five and at least finish the introduction. Okay, give me five minutes. I. Alright, now we are down to the. To page 19. One more introduction, and now is the introduction to the human condition. Before we. Actually, step into the text. Introduction. Like all, like other religious teachings, the Buddha's teachings, teaching originates as a response to the strains at the heart of the human condition. What distinguishes his teaching from other religious approaches to the human condition is the directness, thoroughness, and the uncompromising realism with which he looks at these streams. The Buddha does not offer us palliatives that leave the underlying maladies untouched beneath the surface. Rather, he traces our existential illness down to its most fundamental causes, so persistent and destructive, and shows us how this can be totally uprooted. However, while the Dharma will eventually lead to the wisdom that eradicates the causes of suffering, it does not begin there, but with observations about the hard facts of everyday experience. Here too, its directness, thoroughness, and tough realism are evident. The, teachings, the teaching begins by calling upon us to develop a faculty called Yoniso Manasikara, careful attention. The Buddha asks us to stop drifting thoughtlessly through our lives and instead to pay careful attention to simple truths that are everyday available to us, clamoring for the sustained consideration they deserve. One of the most obvious and inescapable of these truths is also among the most difficult for us to fully acknowledge namely that we are bound to grow old, fall ill, and die. It is commonly assumed that the Buddha beckons us to recognize the reality of old age and death in order to motivate us to enter the path of renunciation, leading to Nibbana, complete liberation from the realm of birth and death. However, 
while this may be his ultimate intention, it is not the first response he seeks to invoke in us when we turn to him for guidance. The initial response that Buddha intends to arouse in us is an ethical one. By calling our attention to our bondage to old age and death, he seeks to inspire in us a firm resolution to turn away from unwholesome ways of living and to embrace instead wholesome alternatives. Again, the Buddha, firm, the Buddha grounds his initial ethical appeal not only upon a compassionate feeling for other beings, but also upon our instinctive concern for our own well, long-term welfare and happiness. He tries to make us see that to act in accordance with ethical guidelines will enable us to secure our own well-being both now and in the long-term future. His argument hinges on the important premise that actions have consequences. If we are to alter our accustomed ways, we must be convinced of the validity of this principle, specifically the change from a self stultifying way of life to one that is truly fruitful and inwardly rewarding. We must realize that our actions have consequences for ourselves, consequences that can rebound upon us both in this life and in subsequent lives. Yeah. Whenever I read uh, texts like this uh, that I've not read before, and then, yeah, uh, it, it, it gives me that satisfaction in a, not in a proud way, but in that, yeah, we are, he is a very senior monk, and he, he was trained in a, quite a different way as what I went through. Yeah, but we come to the, we all come to the same conclusion, yeah, that as far as ethics is concerned, uh, it's about recognizing that actions have consequences. This is why in parents' class, you hear me keep telling the parents, if there's one thing you need to get your kids to understand and remember and to know, is that their actions have consequences. If they do something wrong, and you tell them off and they stop, and after that, beyond you telling them to stop, there's no other consequences, okay, then I just say, yeah, consequences. The teaching on karma is about consequences, the teaching on, on precepts is about consequences, yeah, and being responsible for our consequences. Yeah. The three suttas that constitute the first section of this chapter establish this point eloquently, each in its own way. Text 1, text 111 enunciates the inevitable law that all beings who have taken birth must undergo aging and death. Although at first glance, the discourse seems to be a stating a mere fact of nature, by citing as examples members of the upper strata of society, wealthy rulers, brahmins and householders, and liberated arhats, it, it insinuates a subtle moral message in, into its words. Yeah. Text 112 brings out this message more explicitly with this impressive simile of the mountain, which drives home the point that when aging and death are rolling in on us, our task in life is to live righteously and do wholesome and meritorious deeds. 
the Sutta on the Divine Messengers yeah, establishes the corollary to this. We fail to recognize the Divine Messengers in our midst when we miss the hidden warning signals of always illness and death, we become negligent and behave recklessly, creating unwholesome karma with the potential to yield dreadful consequences. The realization that we are bound to overall and die breaks the spell of infatuation cast over us by sensual pleasures, wealth and power. It dispels the means of confusion and motivates us to take fresh stock of our purposes in life. We may not be ready to give up family and possessions for a life of homeless wandering and solitary meditation, but this is not an option the Buddha generally expects of his household householder disciples. Now this is again what I've been highlighting. Yeah, we don't expect that lay people will live like monks. Yeah, there's lay follower. Your yeah, you have your own duties and responsibilities, your own pursuits. Yeah. Uh, but the key thing is within that pursuit, how do you live your life pursuing whatever you want to pursue without causing other future problems? Yeah. Rather, as we saw above, the first lesson he draws from the fact that our lives end in age and death is an ethical one interwoven with the principles of karma and rebirth. The law of karma stipulates that our unwholesome and wholesome actions have consequences extending far beyond this present life. Unwholesome actions lead to rebirth in states of misery and bring future pain and suffering. Wholesome actions lead to a pleasant rebirth and bring future well-being and happiness. Since we have to grow old and die, we should be constantly aware that any present prosperity we might enjoy is merely temporary. We can enjoy it only as long as we are young and healthy. And when we die, our newly acquired karma will gain the opportunity to ripen and bring forth its own results. We must then reap the due fruits of our deeds. With an eye to our long-term future welfare, we should scrupulously avoid evil deeds that result in suffering and diligently engage in wholesome deeds that generate happiness here and in the future and in future lives. The second section we explore let me see. In the second section we explore three aspects of human life that are collected under the heading tribulations of unreflective living. These types of suffering differ from the from those connected with OH and death in an important respect. OH and death are bound up with bodily existence and are thus unavoidable, common to both ordinary people and liberated arhans, a point made in the first text of this chapter. So earlier on it mentioned about how whether you are a normal person, yeah, uh, wealthy, not healthy, whatever, uh, and including enlightened ones like arhans, you have to, as soon as you have this body, you are subjected to OH sickness and death. Or as I, the way I put it, if you have a head, you can have a headache. If you don't have a headache, you don't have a head. <laughs> so, <coughs> then, so here, tribulations of unreflective living, 
Yeah, this is not about OH, sickness and death. You cannot avoid OH and sickness and death. Yeah, with modern technology, you can try to allay the e effects. Yeah, but there's another kind of suffering which you can avoid very directly. Yeah, uh, here it says, in contrast, the three texts included in this section all distinguish between the ordinary person called uninstructed whirling. Asutawa Pudujana. Pudujana is basically whirling. Yeah? And the wise follower of the Buddha, called the instructed noble disciple. Sutawa Arya Samaka. <laughs> Arya is enlightened, Samaka is the hearer. The first of this distinction, drawn in text 1, 2, 1, revolves around the response to painful feelings. So this is the Vedana Sangita Sutta, about the different kind of feelings and how noble ones and unenlightened, uh, unenlightened ones to respond differently. Both the whirling and the noble disciple experience painful bodily feelings, but they respond to these feelings differently. The whirling reacts to them with aversion and therefore, on top of the painful bodily feeling, also experiences a painful mental feeling, sorrow, resentment or distress. The noble disciple, when afflicted with bodily pain, endures such feeling patiently, without sorrow, resentment or distress. It is commonly assumed that physical and mental pain are inseparably linked, but the Buddha makes a clear demarcation between the two. He holds that while bodily existence is inevitably bound up with physical pain, such pain need not trigger the emotional re reactions of misery, fear, resentment and distress with which we habitually respond to it. And so this, this, that's a very key part, uh, which is, uh, in fact recently someone had this conversation with me and then um, mentioned about uh, how uh, we should take care of our health. Yeah, uh, and, and there was some implication about, oh, if we fall sick, you know, uh, it could imply that we are not cultivating or something. And in fact, some Buddhists do have this idea that if a person falls sick, it means that the person is not cultivating. Yeah. <laughs> She's meditating. Yeah. So, but this is a wrong view. The yes. whole idea that, oh, if I become a Buddhist and I practice, then I should not fall sick. No. Yeah. Here it states very clearly. Yeah. Even Arahants, the Buddha himself fell sick. So, you know. But of course, there are some sickness that are avoidable. Yeah. Because some sickness is due to bad living habits. Yeah. So if you avoid the bad living habits, you don't fall sick. Yeah. If a person drinks heavily, yeah, not just future life. This life, your your liver go goes down. If you sleep late, yeah, you don't have enough rest uh, over a period of time. Your liver will be affected. Your lungs will be affected. So there are a lot, of, not a lot, lah, But I heard of my mom telling me about how uh, her friends, uh, one one or two cases. The son. Um, just as he finished his studies, uh, I think come up, 
got a job or something, uh, work less than a year, pao pi. Yeah, just die. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then another one, um, before even graduating, then I think, yeah, committed suicide. Yeah, so the, the distinction, uh, yeah, uh, not everything is due to past karma, or, uh, or whether you are cultivating or not cultivating. But if you are cultivating, then you don't have that cow. No. You just no. give yourself a reason. No. No. Uh, so, for example, if a person falls uh, sick. Um, he may be a, a Buddhist, he may observe the precepts, but there's no precept about sleeping late. Ma. No, no, I'm talking about the. the, the Xiao Xiao. Yeah, of course, that's a different yeah. thing altogether. Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't. Um, uh, but I must also highlight in the Buddha's time, there were some monks who allowed themselves to be killed, in a way, commit suicide. But the Buddha declared them to be faultless. Yeah. Because they have already reached the first fruit. They are incapable of doing that uh, with wrong intent anymore. Oh. Yeah, so... Um, Sacrifice. Uh, it is said that they have... Uh, they, it is a ripening or something. Some commentaries say it is a ripening of the karma. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, in, in, in those suttas, the Buddha declared them to be thoughtless. Yeah. That they didn't commit killing intentionally. Yeah. Okay, so through mental training we can develop the mindfulness and clear comprehension necessary to endure physical pain courageously with practice, with patience and equanimity. Through insight we can develop sufficient wisdom to overcome our dread of painful feelings and our need to seek relief in distracting binges of sensual self-indulgence. Okay, the rest, uh, Kelvin. Okay. Another aspect of human life that brings to the fore the differences between the whirling and the noble disciple is the changing vicissitude eh, of fortunes the Buddha text neatly reduces this to four pairs of opposites, known as the eight worldly conditions. Atta Lokadama, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. Text 1, 2, 2 shows how the whirling and the noble disciple differ in their responses to these changes. While the whirling is elated by success in achieving gain, fame, praise and pleasure, and dejected when confronted with their undesired opposites, the noble disciple remains unperturbed. By applying the understanding of impermanence to both favorable and unfavorable conditions, the noble disciples can abide in equanimity, not attached to favorable conditions, not repelled by unfavorable ones. Such a disciple gives up likes and dislikes, sorrow and distress, and ultimately wins the highest blessings of all. Complete freedom from suffering. Text 1, 2, 3 examines the plight of the whirling 
at a still more fundamental level, because they misconceive things, whirlings are agitated by change, especially when a change affects their own bodies and minds. The Buddha classifies the consequence of body and mind into five categories known as the five aggregates subject to clinging. Uh, how do you pronounce that? Pancupadan. Pancupadan. Pancupadana. Pachupadana Kanda. Kanda. Form, fuel, perception, volition, formation, actually, and processes. Let me explain that. Huh? So, 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 it's so. actually Pancha Upadana Kanda. Pancha Upadana. Pancha is five. Yeah, Pancha Sila. Hmm. Pancha is five. Then Upadana is clinging. Then Kanda. Kanda is the aggregates. Kanda literally means the heap of things. For details, see pages uh, 305-07. These five aggregates are the building blocks that we typically use to construct our sense of personal identity. They are things that we cling to as being mine, I, and myself. Whatever we identify with, whatever we take to be a self, or possessions of a self can all be classified among these five aggregates. The five aggregates are thus the ultimate grounds of identification and appropriation. Two basic activities by which we establish a sense of selfhood. Since we invest our notions of selfhood and personal identity with a, an intense emotional concern, when the objects to which they are fastened, the five aggregates undergo change we naturally experience anxiety and distress. In our perception, it is not mere impersonal phenomena that are undergoing change, but our very identities, our cherished selves, and this is what we fear most of all. However, as the present text shows, a noble disciple has clearly seen with wisdom the delusive nature of all notions of permanent selfhood and thus no longer identifies with the five aggregates. Therefore, the noble disciple can confront their change without anxious concern, unperturbed in the face of their alteration, decay, and destruction. Agitation and turmoil afflict human life not only at the personal and private level, but also in our social interactions. From the most ancient times, our world has always been one of violent confrontations and conflict. The names, places, and instruments of destruction may change, but the forces behind them the motivations, the expressions of greed and hate remain fairly constant. The Nikayas testify that the Buddha was intensely aware of this dimension of the human condition. Through his teaching, with stress on ethical self-discipline and mental self-cultivation, aims primarily at personal enlightenment and liberation, the Buddha also sought to offer people a refuge from the violence and injustice that wrecked human lives in such cruel ways. This is apparent in his emphasis on loving-kindness and compassion, on harmlessness in action and gentleness in speech, and on peaceful resolution of disputes. The third section of this chapter includes four short texts dealing with the underlining roots of violent conflict and injustice. We can see from this text that the Buddha does not clamor for changes merely in the outer structures of society. He demonstrates that this dark phenomena are external projections of the unwholesome proclivities of the human mind and thus points to the need for inner change 
as a paramount condition for establishing peace and social justice. Each of the four texts included in this section traces conflict, violence, political oppression and economic injustice back to their causes. It in its own way locates these causes within the mind. Text 131 explains conflicts between lay people as arising from attachment to sensual pleasures, conflicts within ascetics as arising from attachment to views. Text 132, a dialogue between the Buddha and the Saka, and Saka, the pre-Buddhistic Indian ruler of the Devas, traces hatred and enmity to envy and niggardliness. From there, the Buddha traces them back to the fundamental distortions that affect the way our perception and cognition process the information provided by the senses. Text 133 offers another version of the famous chain of causation which proceeds from feeling to craving and from craving via other conditions to the taking up of club and weapons and other violent behaviour. Text 134 depicts how the three roots of evil, greed, hatred and delusion, have terrible repercussions on a whole society, issuing in violence, lust for power and unjust inflictions of suffering. All four texts imply that any significant and lasting transformation of society requires significant changes in the moral fibre of individual human beings for as long as greed, hatred and delusion run rampant. As determinant of conduct, the consequences are bound to be consistently detrimental. The Buddha teachings addresses a fourth aspect of the human condition, which, unlike the three we have so far examined, is not immediately perceptible to us. This is our bondage to the round of rebirth. From the selection of texts included in this final section of this chapter, we see that the Buddha teaches our individual lifespan to be merely a single phase within a series of rebirth that has been proceeding without any discernible beginning in time. This series of rebirth is called samsara, a Pali word which suggests the idea of directionless wandering. No matter how far back in time we may seek a beginning to the universe, we never find an initial moment of creation. No matter how far back we may trace any given sequence of life, we can never arrive at the first point. According to texts 141 and 142, even if we were to trace the sequence of our mothers and fathers across world systems, we would only come upon still more mothers and fathers stretching back to the far horizons. Moreover, process is not only beginningless, but is also potentially endless. As far as ignorance and craving remain intact, the process will continue indefinitely into the future with no end in sight. For the Buddha and early Buddhism, this is above all defining crisis at the heart of the human condition. We are bound to a chain of rebirth and bound to it by nothing other than our own ignorance and craving. The pointless wandering on in samsara occurs against a cosmic background of inconceivable vast dimensions. The period of time that it takes for a world system to evolve, reach its phase of maximum expansion, contract, and then disintegrate is called a kappa. Sankrit kalpa, an aeon. Text 134 offers a vivid simile to suggest the aeon's duration. Text 144, another vivid simile to illustrate the incalculable number of aeons to which we have wandered. As beings wander and roam from life to life, shrouded in darkness. 
They fall again and again into the shadow of birth, easing, sickness and death. But because of their craving propels them forward in a relentless quest for gratification, they seldom pause long enough to step back and attend carefully to their existential plight. As text 145 states, they instead just keep evolving around the five aggregates in a way a dog on a leash might run around a post or pillar. Since their ignorance prevents them from recognizing the vicious nature of their condition, they cannot discern even the tracks of a path to deliverance. Most beings live immersed in the enjoyment of sensual pleasures. Others, driven by the need for power, status and esteem, pass their lives in vain attempts to fuel an unquenchable task. Many, fearful of annihilation at death, construct belief systems that ascribe to their individual selves, their souls, the prospect of eternal life. A few yearn for a path to liberation, but do not know where to find one. This is precisely to offer such a path that the Buddha has appeared in our midst. Thank you. That ends the introduction. And uh, formally marks the start of our text. The human condition. One, one, one. OH, illness and death. Aging and death. <clears throat> uh, Orange, would you like to read the first verse? First one. The human condition, old age, illness, and death. Aging and death. Et Sagati, King Pasinadi of Kusala, said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, is anyone who is born free from aging and death? Great King, no one who is born is free from aging and death. Even those affluent Katiras, rich with great wealth and property, with abundant gold and silver, abundant treasures and commodities, abundant wealth and grain, because they have been born, are not free from aging and death. Even those affluent Brahmins, affluent householders, rich, with abundant wealth and grain, because they have been born, are not free from aging and death. Even those monks who are arahants, whose things are destroyed, who have lived a holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached their own goal, utterly destroyed the fetters of existence, and are completely liberated through final knowledge, even for them, this body is subject to breaking up, subject to being laid down. The beautiful chariots of kings wear out. This body too undergoes decay. But the Dharma of the good does not decay. So the good proclaim along with the good. Thank you. Samyuna Nikaya 33171. That's the page number, right? 163 to 64. Uh, 163, yes, that should be the pitch number. Yeah. So we are supposed to refer back to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can bring it out. So, so for example, I was having this discussion with Orange just now. I was telling her that I've, I've read through the human condition. Yeah. So I realized that uh, when 
the variable was writing this. Yeah. He wrote the sutas out, but they are in brief, right? He was wrote, writing only the essence or putting the essence in there. So does it mean that we have to constantly refer back to the Nikayas to get a full sutta itself? What do you mean by essence to give the essence? I mean, is this the full sutta as in the Samhita and Nikaya? Yeah. It is? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was only a. Go, I don't have the Samhita and Nikaya. We don't have it. Uh. I'm your line. Oh. Okay. Well, so um, this is. So over here, um, this is what actually appears inside the Sangta Nikaya. But of course, like 3, colon 3, uh, book 3, and then uh, uh, the Sutta number 3, and so on. Um, this is the actual sutta itself. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is the actual sutta. But um, there are various suttas under aging and death. Yeah, there could be another one talking similarly about this. Yeah, the whole chapter is all about this. <laughs> aging and death. I think it, so. It, it, it just can be defined in a simple sentence as in you can't escape old age and death. Uh, you can. But don't do that. Yeah, but. Huh? Yeah, but don't try to do that. <laughs> uh, in in modern times, uh, we always try to say, okay, just tell me what the bottom line. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, but it is like saying, um, yeah, the, the, the details are the yeah. The details and the process of how to get the answer is many times as important as the End result. Yeah, but yeah. I, I mean, based on you, you read this whole paragraph, I cannot, I cannot go into let's in what else to. No, you yeah. see. Yes, the bottom line is, um, here, King Pasinadi is a very powerful person. There's some background to it, right? Kosala oh. is a very, is a, is Good one state. of the very powerful states. Yeah. So King Pasinadi of Kosala is a very powerful king. Oh. Now all the kings are of the caste Katiyas. Yeah? The Katiyas Katiyas are the warriors. Yeah, or in Sanskrit Kshatriyas. Yeah. Katiyas are actually the warriors. There are four castes in the Buddha's time. Now in India there's even more different layers. Sub levels. In the Buddha's time there are four levels. According to the Brahmins, they will put Brahmin as topmost, then the Katyas, then the merchants, and the laborers. Yeah. Now, you see that Buddha highlighted Katyas, then uh, the Brahmins, and then householders. Yeah. And keep highlighting, even as they are rich in great wealth and property. Yeah. But you notice, if this translation is correct, the Buddha says, even those affluent Katyas. But the, the person he's talking to is a Katya, no? It's like, I tell you, even those Chinese, for your Chinese, I'm also Chinese. The Buddha himself was a Katya. Yeah. So, by saying this, he first referred to the class that the king who is him, he's talking to uh, is of that category. And he highlighted that. He's basically telling him in the face, yeah, I know you are rich, you have great wealth and property, 
with abundant gold and silver, you have a lot of things, all these things. But even then, no, for me, you cannot do other things when I'm, yeah, then you can look for it first. I, I, I'm not, and I, but I must wait for it to be totally 100%. Yeah, so it's about, yeah, like, if you ask me, what's the conclusion? You, the, the one line conclusion is nobody can escape from this. But there's a lot of underlying tone inside. Yeah. And it is in this context that he's speaking to one of the most powerful person. Can you imagine if you talk to Obama now and you tell him that there are those presidents of very powerful nations. They are rich, they are powerful, they are superpower. But even then, they are not free from old age and death. Such a very powerful statement. Though. You, you dare to tell a king this, uh. <laughs> yeah. But then to us as a reader, then you have to reflect. Even a king is subject to that. We oftentimes not 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 us uh, but many people strive to have great wealth, identify that wealth and be satisfied and feel very um, what you call that satisfied with that, yeah. Um, and sometimes may become may even become proud because of that. And this 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 sutta, while the bottom line is yeah, you know, no one can escape. But it's really a poignant message to get us to think like you think it'll be very special. <laughs> yeah. That regardless of where you are in the whole social strata, you cannot escape that. And then the Buddha even highlighted even enlightened ones, no one can escape from that. Yeah. The reason why I say don't try to just go for the what is the bottom line, yeah, because um, under, reading through the text and then understanding the nuances inside uh, has a lot of implication and not just about the bottom line also. Mm-hmm. No? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you want the verse at the end, oh, the verse at the end is the bottom line. Oh. <laughs> Macha mantra. Yeah. Yeah. All shall die. All shall die. All shall die. You grow, you die. You grow, you die. All die, all die. Yeah. I think what what is what? like it you know if I can if I may, it's like in mathematics. Yeah. Uh, in school if you just give the answer and don't give working, uh, the teacher if a teacher is good will just mark you zero. Yeah. If a teacher is kind, may give you one point out of five. Yeah. If a teacher don't care, will give you full marks. <laughs> yeah, because the important thing is whether you get, you understand how to get the answer. Not the answer. Answer is not. Answer is not so important. Yeah. Because once you understand the implication, then you will conclude in the same way. Huh? Yeah, Kevin, you want you have something to add. One more. Oh. Uh, do we have enough energy for the next one? <laughs> I, I, I take my meter and see. Not really. Eh? Not really. <laughs> meter dying out. <laughs> yeah. quite, quite, quite a bit. Can uh. Can uh. Okay, we cover one more section. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we cover one more section. Uh. Yeah. 
Okay, the simile of the mountain at Savati. So the earlier one is at Savati, this is also at Savati. So Savati, uh, Savati is actually the city, the name of the city, and it's also the name of a state. Yeah. Uh, and it's a very powerful state. Yeah. Like Singapore? Uh, uh, I'm not so sure, but Singapore is a city state. It's like Singapore in terms of the fact that it's a city and a state also. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but this is one of the 16 countries, uh, states that back then that is quite powerful. Super powerful, sir. Military might. Uh, well, uh, influential. Is inside India. Uh, powerful in a sense, like today, if you look at um, uh, powerful for a country, it means that it has military might, it has wealth. Uh, and in the case of Samati, uh, a lot of people congregate there. Yeah. Uh, I, let me see. Uh, uh, if I don't recall wrongly, the word Samati uh, is the name of the city and the meaning is the place where there are a lot of uh, things or something like that. A lot of you know uh, a lot of a lot of things, a lot of goods. Yeah. The name itself is saying that this place is so prosperous. Uh, we wait for him to come out. Uh, uh, shall we finish until yeah. the divine messengers? Because it's only two pages. Ah. Yeah. Okay, let's see how. Nah. Okay. okay he, Kevin has already read before, so we can continue. At Savati, in the middle of the day, King Pasanadi, again his King Pasanadi of Kosala, approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, and sat down to one side. The Blessed One then asked him, Now where are you coming from, great king, in the middle of the day? Just now, venerable sir, I have been engaged in those affairs of kingship, typical for kings, who are intoxicated with the intoxication of sovereignty, who are obsessed by greed for sensual pleasures, who have obtained stable control in their country, and who rule having conquered a great sphere of territory on earth. You see? Yeah. So here, he himself stated it so clearly. Yeah, he, he don't hide. He stated very clearly. He is a very powerful king. He's not just a small fiefdom, you know. He is a powerful king. And he enjoys sensual pleasure. But, and he's not just enjoying, he's obsessed by greed for sensual pleasure. He's a king. Yeah? So, the Buddha asked him, What do you think, great king? Uh, there was a time where <clears throat> sometimes I will ignore people's title. But then one day I remember that the Buddha himself, when he talked to people, he referred them properly. If he's a king, he referred to them as new great king. Or if he referred to a Brahmin, he referred old Brahmin. Very, very respectful, you know. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, if a person is a professor, okay, I'll call you prof. La. <laughs> 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 yeah. <coughs> what do you think, great king? Suppose a man would come to you from the east, one who is trustworthy and reliable, and will tell you, 
For sure, great king, you should know this. I am coming from the east, and there I saw a great mountain, high as the clouds coming this way, crushing all living beings. Do whatever you think should be done, great king. Then a second man would come to you from the west, a third man from the north, and a south, a man, a fourth man from the south. One who is trustworthy and reliable would tell you, For sure, great king, I, you should know this. I am coming from the south, and there I saw a great mountain, high as the clouds coming this way, crushing all living beings. Do whatever you think should be done, great king. If great king, such a great peril should arise, such a terrible destruction of human life, the human state being so difficult to obtain, what should be done? If, venerable sir, such a great peril should arise, such a terrible destruction of human life, the human state being so difficult to obtain, what else should be done but to live by the Dharma, to live righteously, and to do wholesome and meritorious deeds? I inform you, great king, I announce to you, great king, aging and death are rolling in on you. When aging and death are rolling in on you, great king, what should be done? As aging and death are rolling in on me, venerable sir, what else should be done but to live by the Dharma, to live righteously, and to do wholesome and meritorious deeds? Venerable sir, kings intoxicated with the intoxication of sovereignty, obsessed by greed for sensual pleasures, who have attained stable control in their country and rule over a great sphere of territory, conquered by means of elephant battles, cavalry battles, chariot battles, and infantry battles. But there is no hope of victory by such battles, no chance of success when aging and death are rolling in. In this royal court, venerable sir, there are counsellors who, when the enemies arrive, are capable of dividing them by subterfuge. But there is no hope of victory by subterfuge, no chance of success when Aging and death are rolling in. In this royal court, Venerable Sir, there exists abundant bullion and gold stored in vaults and lost, and with such wealth, we are capable of mollifying the enemies when they come. But there's no hope of victory by wealth, by there no chance of success when aging and death are rolling in. As aging and death are rolling in on me, Venerable Sir, what else should I do but live by the Dharma, live righteously, and do wholesome and meritorious deeds? So this is said by the king in reply. Yeah? Uh, that all the things that the king has become useless in the face of aging and death. You cannot overcome it. Yeah? So it is, great king. So it is, great king. As aging and death are rolling in on you, what else should you do but live by the Dharma, live righteously, and do wholesome and meritorious deeds? This is what the Blessed One said. Having said this, the Fortunate One, the Teacher, further said this. All these are epithets referring to the Buddha. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the Fortunate One is translated as... Uh, oh, not too sure, but there's Blessed One here and then Fortunate One there. Just as mountains of solid rock 
massive, reaching to the sky, might draw together from all sides, crushing all in the four quarters, so aging and death come, rolling over living beings. Now these are the four castes, Katiyas, Brahmins, Vesas, Sudas. Outcasts and scavengers, they spare none along the way, but come crushing everything. There's no hope there for victory. By elephant troop, chariots and infantry, one cannot defeat them by subterfuge or buy them off by means of wealth. Therefore, a person of wisdom here, out of regard for his own good, steadfast, should settle faith in the Buddha, Dharma and the Sangha. And Sangha. When one conducts oneself by Dharma, with body, speech and mind, they praise one here in the present life, and after that, one rejoices in heaven. Until today, we are still trying to overcome aging and death. You know, there was one time I looked at uh, I think GE two o one one. Oh, that was the massive. Uh, uh, the shocker. Yeah, the shocker. And uh, before that, I met. We we had some meetings with the ministers. Uh, and after the election, there were some meetings. The attitude is so different. Before that, it was. The, oh, sorry, I'm under the corner. <laughs> yeah. But there is a huge difference. Um, the, the political power that a person has, or if a person is an entrepreneur, a businessman, uh, all this can be taken away easily. Uh, you look at yesterday, yesterday or the day before, somebody mentioned about Hillary Clinton. Uh, that he, you, you got to, you know, really be amazed by the fact that she's like 70, almost 70, 60 plus 70 years old. Still trying, no? Still trying, no? And yet, almost, at most two terms, eight years, by then she's 70 plus years old. And no matter whether she do good, do like she manage to get what she wants and do this or do that, in due time she'll pass away. Yeah. In due time it will just be a pitch in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there in the past how many years uh, many people have asked me this question. Like why did you choose to <laughs> ordain her? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it feels so Donald Trump. Like half an hour ago, I was thinking. <laughs> it feels so Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, I remember the. Huh? Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fortune in a way. It's it's married. Uh, it is 
a fortune to have met the various teachers I've met. Mm. I remember that in the first retreat, uh, one of the Dhamma brother, he shared with us a similar, uh, not exactly the same, but he shared about how uh, in the teachings, the Buddha said that in all the different lives, uh, we have been kings, we have been warriors, we have been born in the heavenly realms before, we have been born in practically anything you can think of. What, what for pursue it one more time? He's not even one of the instructors, just a fellow novice monk, you know. But when I heard that at that moment in that environment, I was very, I was like, wow, it was a... And I thought, yeah, at that moment I know clearly, whatever I've achieved at work, in my career, as much as it was my passion all these years back then, uh, I know that it doesn't have a stranglehold on me anymore. I know that I can just put it aside. And that's why after the retreat, I actually requested to to hold in. Uh, but, well, I got rejected. <laughs> well, yeah. So, but of course it's not just that. But that helped me look at what I was pursuing, what I've been pursuing, and to put things into perspective. Every one of us will have different entry point. Uh, some of us is this, some of us is the death of a loved one, others is is your own health. For some people when they fall sick then they realize wow. You know, yeah. Every time I fall sick I will look at I will think, ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I am I, I can die anytime. The divine messengers there are monks, three divine messengers. What three? So this is the... I also made good teacher, but I never think of... That's because you... You say you make good teacher, then you think of Odin. You say you make good teacher, Because... Uh, <laughs> because... I'm a diligent student. <laughs> yeah, maybe when you finish this book then. Yeah. So there are monks, three divine messengers. Part three. There is a person of bad conduct in body, speech and mind. On the dissolution of the body, after death he is reborn in a plane of misery, in a bad destination in a lower world, in hell. There, the waters of hell seize him by both arms and take him before Yama, the lord of death, saying, This man, your majesty, had no respect for father and mother, nor for ascetics and brahmins, nor did he honour the elders of the family. May your majesty inflict due punishment on him. Then monks, King Yama, questions that man examines him and addresses him regarding uh, concerning the first divine messenger. Didn't you ever see, my good man, the first divine messenger appearing among humankind? And he replies, 
No, Lord, I did not see. I did not see him. Then King Yama says to him, But my good man, didn't you ever see a woman or a man, 80, 90 or 100 years old, frail, bent like a, brook, like a roof bracket, crooked, leaning on a stick, shakily going along, ailing, youth and vigor gone, with broken teeth, and with grey and scanty hair or bald, wrinkled with blotched limbs. And the man replies, Yes, Lord, I have seen this. Then King Yama says to him, My good man, didn't it ever occur to you, an intelligent and mature person? I too am subject to old age and cannot escape it. Let me now do noble deeds by body, speech and mind. No, Lord, I could not do it. I was negligent. Then King Yama says, Through negligence, my good man, you have failed to do noble deeds by body, speech and mind. Well, you will be treated as defeats your, diligent, your negligence. That evil action of yours was not done by mother or father, brothers, sisters, friends or companions, nor by relatives, devas, ascetics or brahmins. But you alone have done that evil deed and you will have to experience the fruit. Okay, I want to invite Kelvin uh, to finish the rest of the sutra. Okay. When monks, King Yama has questioned, examine and address him tasks concerning the first divine messenger. He again questions, examines and addresses the man about the second one, saying, Didn't you ever see, my good man, the second divine messenger appearing upon among humankind? No, Lord, I did not see him. But, my good man, didn't you ever see a woman or a man who was sick and in pain, seriously ill, lying in his own filth, having to be lifted up by some and put to bed by others? Yes, Lord, I have seen this. My good man, didn't it ever occur to you, an intelligent and mature person, I too am subject to illnesses and cannot escape it. Let me now do noble deeds by body, speech and mind. No, Lord, I could not do it. I was negligent. True negligence, my good man. You have failed to do noble deeds by body, speech and mind. Well, you will be treated as befits your negligence. That evil action of yours was not done by mother or father, brothers, sisters, friends or companions, nor by relatives, devas, ascetics or brahmins. But you alone have done that evil deed and you will have to experience the fruit. When monks, King Yama has questioned, examined and addressed him, thus concerning the second divine messenger, he again questions, examines and addresses the man about the third one, saying, Didn't you ever see, my good man, the third divine messenger appearing among humankind? No, Lord, I did not see him. But, my good man, didn't you ever see a woman or a man, one, two or three days dead, the corpse swollen, discolored, and festering. Yes, Lord, I have seen this. Then, my good man, didn't it ever occur to you, an intelligent and matured person? I too am subject to death and cannot escape it. Let me now do noble deeds by body, speech, and mind. No, Lord, I could not do it. I was negligent. Through negligence, my good man, you have failed to do noble deeds by body, speech, and mind. Well, you'll be treated as befits your negligence. That evil action of yours was not done by mother or father, brothers, sisters, friends.
friends or companions, nor by relatives, devas, ascetics or brahmins. But you alone have done that evil deed, and you will have to experience the fruit. Mm. It's from Anguttara Nikaya, uh, chapter 3, that means all the suttas related to number 3, uh, and then sutta number 35. Huh? Uh, but it's basically this. Uh, oh. Yeah. So the divine messenger. Uh, it is very interesting because the Buddha um, mentioned about King Yama. Yeah. is from this. Yeah. So the if you ask me, I can't reconcile these two also because. Uh, I was brought up learning about King Yama, Yellow Wang. But then later, I was also taught that karma, you know, just happens naturally. There's no one to come and punish you. But here, the Buddha says this. So, uh, one is that this is like a this is like a belief that was already there in India. So the Buddha merely uses this to sort of like give it a twist, you know. People already believe that King Yama is that punishing people. So he he shared this dialogue to highlight the importance of uh, recognizing that age, old age, sickness and death comes to you and that you should not, as a result, uh, not care about it. That it will come to you and you should make use of it to remind yourself to practice good. Yeah. Um, in no in other texts, uh, like this King Yama don't appear in many other texts. Only in a few texts. Yeah. So I'm more inclined to think that he was, uh, in a way, figuratively speaking, yeah, or metaphorically speaking. That means this is a piece.我们说，你时候，呀，呃，有如有如果有个人来惩罚你，他会这样子来责问你，呀，so. I see it more that way. But Sufu, the beauty of this is Yen Lo Wang is also Wu Tian Zi Wang. And he's well known in Taoist faith. Oh. He's the one that meets out the punishment to all evil deeds. Taoism borrowed this from India. Yeah. I heard this from my counterpart from China. He says that before Hinduism and Buddhism spread into China, yeah, before the Sikh group, the, the idea of this world in Chinese is very simple. Tian, Di, Ren. Heaven, Earth, Human. Very simple. No, no Mantian Senpo, no Buddha, no God, so many gods. And in fact, <coughs> if you look at the Tao Te Ching, the earliest text for Taoism, it never mentioned about God, this God, that God, that God. It just talked about the Tao, the way, or the, the a more a more proper translation for the way Tao is the cosmic principle. Yeah. Of how things the way things are. Yeah. That the natural natural way of things. Yeah. So the natural order of things is that when uh, when the sun rises and then it shines on the ground, it becomes hot. When it becomes hot then there's heat, then there's more energy, then that, that part that's in the shade is less energy. So this is natural. 
Yeah, this is the natural way of things. Then as the sun rises and rises and rises, over time it shines and shines and shines, then the tree grows, then over time it dies. For it to die, for it to grow is natural, for it to die is also natural. If you want it to grow but don't die, that's unnatural. Uh, that's against nature. Uh, yeah. So early early form of Taoism or Chinese idea, we have this saying, yeah. The Tian is not not as close to what we think of as like Christian God like that. No? It's, that means not to go against nature. Yeah. Yeah. So early part is just Tian heaven, the providence. But no uh, personified idea of or oh, there's this God, that God. Yeah. Then when Indian culture came over, <laughs> Oh, I've got this god that got all, got all over. <laughs> Very interesting. Which, which, the two words. Hey, English, English, hello. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The vessels. Vessels and sudas. So, different class. Vessels refers to the merchants. merchants. Sudas are those who are laborers. Yeah, then you notice after that mentioned about outcasts. So the untouchables are where is it called outcast? It is out of the four recognized class. Oh, okay. Can you imagine laborers is the lowest? Then this group is not even considered part of the group, you know. <laughs> uh -huh. We say high class, low class. Yeah, it's no no class or out class. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh -huh. um, when I was, I mean, I read the Divine Messengers before, uh -huh. but as you were reading it just now, uh -huh. it occurred to me, or rather I realized it vividly, that mm. um, say six months ago, or last year, or even six months ago, mm. even though I, I have seen a lot of news and also in person uh -huh. um, about age, sickness and death. Mm. I mean, it's everywhere. It's, mm. There is Dharma everywhere. Yes. You just have to recognize it. Mm. And yet, although although I, I could feel it mm. and I wanted to do something about it, mm. I wanted to get out of it. I mean, not get out and say, oh, I don't want, I want to live forever. It's not like that. Mm. I say, I, I want to get out of the cycle. this whole thing. And yet, I was mm. so lost. Mm. I I just didn't know the way and I was reflecting and I remember, I mean, I always know it, but you know, it's just, I remember it again that it was through you and through SGC that oh. I discovered Buddhism and I mean, I found the way. So thank you so much. And, and and please forgive me for any anything that I've said or done or yeah, or wrong. Thank you so much. Who introduced you to Ashwisia? Elaine. 
Elaine. That's for your that seldom ah, to okay, SDC. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because she's in my EBC. She's uh, in my English Buddhist class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. She's always with Jia Ling and... Uh, really? With Jia Ling? Yeah. Really? But, but she's they, always with June, I think. Yeah, but when they come to class, she's always sitting in front of Jia Ling. Oh. Uh, I'm the monitor, so I don't... <laughs> I'm I'm there to spy on everybody. Okay. <laughs> Super got question. Uh, yesterday I was driving along the PIE. Uh, it's probably around three plus. Uh, so just past the BKE uh, exit, I was uh, still driving down PIE. Saw a dead monkey. Oh. On the first lane. Oh. So immediately, mindfully, I slowed down. Move out so as not to go over the monkey. Mm-hmm. But in, in such instances, should I be stopping my vehicle, come down and carry the dead monkey away? Or should I just leave it there and let it be wise? I mean, when I went past, I, I only can uh, say up to as much as the monkey would probably have a better rebirth and, and, and probably be. Uh, get into a better rebirth and that's all I can do mm. but should I come down and deal with a monkey or mm. could be a cat or a dog yeah sure so uh, I usually prefer not to say that you should or you must uh, rather I say that uh, there are, there's, it's always not a bad thing to do that uh, but it's not a, a should or must do it but if you are able to do it without endangering yourself and others why not mm. yeah uh, there was a time maybe around the time where I almost went to become a monk already <laughs> uh, yeah I remember driving along Lavender then uh, Boogie's Lavender mm. then you know there's the centre part where it's not just a crossover the, the traffic light Correct. where you there's a holding area you know so I remember driving and then uh, I saw a cat. Yeah. And I drove past and then I did a U-turn at the lavender side or nearer to lavender side. Then I stopped opposite. Then I cross over and I pick it up. Uh, I think that was probably the first time I picked up a bit. Anymore. Uh, it was really cold and stiff. Yeah. Uh, I remember that I wasn't bothered or concerned with the fact that it's a dead thing, that it wasn't dead anymore. Um, yeah, but I was just like, okay, let me at least move it out. Because if you don't move out, one car, two car, you'll just be all over. Splattered over. We send LTA. What's the SDCA. Oh, they were coming. So, okay. So, then they will send someone to I think I took some newspaper. I lift it up. Um, uh, and then I shift it to the the site mm-hmm. yeah and then I cover with it with some newspaper mm-hmm. uh, in fact at that moment I wasn't even thinking whether I was afraid or not 
it was only after that that I, I reflected that, oh yeah, actually, I'm, I was quite surprised after that that, oh yeah, I, yeah I'm not actually a, afraid in that sense. Uh, and the funny thing is that the moment you are, you, you become aware that of other living beings in that way, you start to see that, wow, a lot no? <laughs> you walk, eh, go one cockroach, you go one bird, go one this, go one that, all over the place, all keep going. This <laughs> happened to me about three months ago. Uh-huh. I just, I, I also drove past and I saw a, a dead, uh, I think it's a dog. I, I thought it was a dog. So I drove past and I stopped there and I tell myself, see ya, what should I do? Pick up, where do I go? Then I was, I was in the car thinking for about five, ten minutes like that. Then I said, okay, I shall do something. So I take a big round, then I drove back. I stopped my car, I walked to the place, and it's a tree branch. <laughs> <laughs> so I sat in the car for ten minutes of my thing, just thinking, what should I do with it? Uh, you should take the branch and grow it a tree. <laughs> So, it was so a while. okay. So calm the, down, calm down. So the fake tree branch brought in you real compassion. Should write an article. Fake tree branch and real compassion. <laughs> I'll storm her. <laughs> but after I, I, I passed by the monkey, I, uh, I wish that the monkey would have a good and better result. Uh, after I felt very bad the whole day, why? I did not do anything. Yeah, you. Monkey. I think. I think yes. If I, so, that's what I thought. So yeah, I just felt yeah, like yeah, that. I, I, yeah, I can understand how you would feel bad about it. Uh, then instead of continuing to feel bad, I mean, again, I must say that it's not a bad thing that you felt bad because it means that now you are connecting with the dead monkey no less uh, at a level that is um, beyond just I'm. It's a dead animal, you know, uh, but. Instead of letting yourself feel bad, the next time just again, uh, within safety, yeah, you know, because on the highway, if you just uh, if you want to slow down and stop by the shoulder side, it's okay, but make sure you put, you know, otherwise you want to save, you want to not save, uh, move the monkey in the end later. Yeah. I become the monkey again. Okay. Yeah, become the next monkey. But <laughs> the monkey was on actually on the first leg, express leg. Wow, that's so, very dangerous. I think. Probably the monkey has managed to cross the, come up from yeah, the forest where the Singtel satellites are. Oh, oh, it's that part. Uh. Yeah, oh, so uh. I think he managed to cross part of it. Probably got hit, then died there. Then uh, didn't manage to cross over the other side. Uh, okay. Probably visiting relatives, uh, but. <laughs> Maybe they, could, they should have more anchor bridges, you know, like for oh. the animals. Um, actually, because. The monkeys there, the monkeys are those those monkey monkeys that we see in Singapore are very territorial. So if they ever go by themselves, it's like what we always time joke about. They are always like visiting relatives somewhere else. Huh? If not, they're usually by a whole family. Um, but this monkey is and it's quite sizable. About this big, no. Uh, so it's not a small monkey. Not, eh. not a child. Yeah, it's probably. I would say a young, probably an adult monkey. Eh. Okay. But it was quite cutting, you know, the whole heap of it. Mm. Then. As much as I saw the thing, I quickly slowed down and I moved to the side not to go over the monkey. I think the car that was on the next lane next to me saw me do that and did the same thing as well. Then oh. he also went and both of us missed oh, monkey. To avoid it. Yeah, but whoever comes of that, I don't know. Mm. Well, 
yeah, where possible lah. Yeah, if, and if you find that it's too dangerous to reach the monkey, then take a picture and send an LPA. <laughs> Likewise, if it's the first lane, it's still too dangerous to take a monkey that's dead on the first lane, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was very upset yesterday, whole day. Oh, it was just yesterday? Uh? Yeah. Oh. I was seeing the monkey, I uh, keep thinking of the monkey so bad. Yeah, I, 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 I yeah, the tree branch. We do a dedication to the monkey and the dead in the tree branch. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'd like to extend dedication to the monkey that passed away in the highway uh, and also to Dennis Chang, uh, the young um, boy who, the undergrad who uh, committed suicide in NUS uh, and also to Shok Ting's mother who passed away uh, last week. May they have the conditions to be reborn in a happier realm in Pure Land and learn and practice the Buddha Dharma and attain final liberation in due time. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let's pay respect to the Buddha. First frustration. Goodbye. Side bye. Okay.